Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, Nolan Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kolsick, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going this week? I'm not Noel. This is uh, Leon, his cousin, um, <laughs> who's filling in for him since he quit last week. Yeah. As you well know. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, thank you for stepping in, Leon. It's uh, sure. <laughs> big shoes to fill, but I appreciate you you doing your best. Um, for listeners who, who didn't tune in last week, there was a, a very intense argument over pizza and condiments and why Hawaiian pizza is amazing. Or disgusting, depending on who you ask. Um, but we don't want to rehash that because I don't want to scare Leon away the way that I scared away Noel. Um, so instead, I'm going to say, go Cubs! <laughs> Other things happened this week, yes, but I'm a Chicago girl. Um, and so, of course, the most important TV-related thing for me this week was the Cubs win. Now, did you did you watch Game 7, Noel? Um, well, how it went down is I wasn't in the mood to watch This Is Us or Pole Dark, so I was just like, I'll put on the game, and I think I tuned in around, like, the second or third inning, and then around, like, seven o'clock for me, it was, like, five, one or something, so I just went, ah, well, it's done, it's over, and I just went to go play a video game, and then I was gonna go to bed, and then I just went, ah, well, I'll check the score before I go to bed. Make sure that the Cubs are, like, going to win. Um, and then I see that it's 6-6. And I'm just like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll finish the game. And we'll see how this goes. Forgetting entirely that this was baseball. <laughs> and I haven't watched a baseball game in about a decade, if not longer. And going, oh, right. This is a sport deeply grounded in 19th century leisure time. So, of course, it takes for ever to finish yeah we, they, there's there's no ties there's no ties in baseball barring you know a longer than 17 minute rain delay uh yeah it was intense i was i i haven't been invested fully in a cubs win this this time around uh because i didn't trust it and was like we're gonna screw it up i just i'm not letting myself be hopeful until sure. you know like there's i feel like there's a reason to be hopeful. And you know when I let myself be hopeful? When it was 6-2. Sure, that makes sense. Why and, wouldn't you be hopeful at that point? Yeah, yeah. And then uh, in the last game of the series, and then I foolishly uh, texted my family about how I was finally letting myself be hopeful. And literally, less than a minute later, it was 6-3. Uh, or, or maybe it was 6-3 and then it was 6-4. And then a few minutes after that, it was tied. And I was like, I did it. I, I'm sorry. I, I made it. I, I shouldn't have. I'm sorry. But fortunately, we came back. Uh, it, was, it was the drama of baseball. It was really wonderful to, to like be part of the communal experience on Twitter. Much as Twitter does keep trying to destroy themselves with their updates, um, they still have managed to not quite break the magic that is like a live communal experience. Yeah, on Twitter. Uh, so it was it was a lot of fun, and then of course, living in Chicago, everything went crazy when we when we officially won. But it was a really great um, it was a really great sports moment, Chicago moment, watching TV with you know millions of people moment. Did you see the different reaction videos that were going around? 
I did not see any reaction videos. No, I didn't look for those. There's so. just like, if you want to just get misty, so many like generations of families watching together and you're watching like the 90 year olds freak out with the 60 year olds. And you know, like, I mean, if I didn't get misty about Bob Newhart being excited and I love Bob Newhart, the likelihood of me getting excited about random people in the videotaping themselves is kind of low. <laughs> or, or, or people watching the game at the cemetery with their dead parents. So they can that share just, that? That's just... That is that is a higher degree of sports fandom than I can necessarily grasp. It was it was intense, <laughs> is all I'm saying. And I, I love seeing the different, like... It, because when you're part of a, a fan base for a franchise that hasn't won in 108 years, as plenty of people are saying online, that means that when you're just like, I've been waiting my whole life for this, literally people who, like have been waiting their entire lives and are octogenarians, nonagenarians, over 100 years old, I don't remember what that word is, um, can say that, and it, it just adds all the more power. So it was, it was, a, it was a fun moment. Uh, also, a very in a different week, what would have been the, the highlight for me was the news that came out. Uh, it was today, right? Earlier today as we record, that Alton yeah, Brown was, is bringing yeah. back Good Eats. Yeah, um, as like a web series. But yeah, it's coming back. He's soliciting ideas from the audience for new subjects to tackle. Um, and that's pivotal for both of us since, I mean, I came on and did a DVD shelf with Good Eats with you. And yeah, so that's very exciting. And he's very excited about it as well since he can like do whatever he wants since it's going to be a web series. Yeah. So he'll yeah. be, he'll. I imagine that he'll just be like, we're going to really... We're going to really set some things on fire this time. <laughs> well, I just, I'm like, I'm trying to think of what the Food Network was telling him he couldn't do to the point where he stopped doing the show or where that was a yeah. concern. I'm like, okay, so that means, is it going to be even nerdier? <gasps> Yay! <laughs> it could be. It probably will be. And, I mean, the other thing that it opens up is that because the show is, was around for so long and a lot of people, like, our age, if not younger if not older for that matter, like watched it regularly, like the guest stars that he can get now mm -hmm. to come on and like whatever random celebrity or web famous web person can come on and do an episode with him or participate in a sketch about some random thing yeah. food related. And that's really exciting. Cause I mean, there's a whole slew of like cooking YouTube's personalities now um, that can come on and do this with the guy who kind of invented a kind of DIY type of food exploration program because I mean he ran that show out of his kitchen for so long. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and again, it's fourteen years. Uh, I, there's I'm plenty of of uh, food celebrities that I'm sure would like to be involved. There's also I'm sure plenty of scientists who would like love yeah. to come on. And that's you know that's what I love about Good Eats is it's, it's about science and connecting that with food and food science. So so I I look forward to whatever is coming uh, down the pike for that. For those who haven't listened to our DB shelf segment on that, they can go back into the archives uh, at thetelverse.org and find that segment. But I mean, I still we usually make uh, Alton Brown's Thanksgiving turkey every year. I swear by his coconut cake recipe, which is amazing. There's there's plenty of um, Alden Brown recipes that I, or in, in techniques, cooking techniques that I swear by because they they make sense to me. They work for me. They taste good, but they also make sense to me on like a technical basis. It gives me a better understanding of the process of cooking and everything. Which, again, being a nerd, 
uh, I'm very excited about. So, uh, yeah, it, it, there there was some some entertaining, like positive, positive news in the TV sphere. I need all the positive juju I can get so that I can be optimistic going into next week. We haven't said it yet, but listeners, vote. Yeah. Provided you're in the United States, again, disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. If you're not, then I'm sure you're just eating popcorn, just, like, watching us all, like, lose our minds in this last week. Yeah, I, I really can't imagine that there anyone outside of the United States is eating popcorn, um, <laughs> considering that now, they're, now their leaders, if things go poorly, would have to deal with Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> yeah. That yeah. doesn't seem like a great thing for it's anyone. It's less funny. That's <laughs> yeah. possible. Uh, before you wrap up here, do you are there any? Um, I guess we maybe we'll talk about this next week. Any sketches or or like uh, s- things that have come out in the past week that you've particularly enjoyed in a web streaming TV kind of way? Like, there's going to be an SNL election special on Monday. Right. Um, well, Seth Meyers has been great basically for the past three months. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was really great this week with a whole, like, basically, he did what a lot of people have done, which is, these are all the bad things Trump has done, and did, like, he was at a high school forensics debate and just listed them off really, really quickly. And then he was just like, email server. <laughs> They're exactly the same. It's so hard to choose. Um, the only other thing is that um, The Daily Show, and I saw this in, like, a GIF set um did a bit where trump has two percent of like black support within the united states mm-hmm. and to put it in reference trevor Noah explained that only five percent of the players in the national hockey league are black and hockey has everything black people hate which is white people in masks chasing them it's cold they celebrate things with a police siren going off and they put you in jail when you have a penalty. <laughs> um, so it was a very funny gift set. I should have like actually looked for the video to see like Nova's delivery of all that, but it was still just really funny. It came across really, really nicely. And he showed like the four black men who played mm-hmm. in the National Hockey League because it's otherwise just really cute Russians, from what I understand from my friend Danielle. <laughs> I'll have to check that one out. I enjoyed the the song that Rachel Bloom put together, We Are the World Style, for Funny or Die. Mm -hmm. But I I still think my favorite uh, one is the uh, Joss Whedon-directed one with Chris Pine and a bunch of the Whedon players, um, who I always enjoy talking about what if this dysfunctional Congress was your coworker. Um, so I think that it's going to be hard for anyone to top that one. That was nobody. Look at Bob. I saw you <laughs> looking at Bob. Yeah. And of course that's David Fury. One of the Buffy angel, uh, Buffy and angel writers as well as, you know, one of the best episodes of lost and many other things. So it's just, I uh, got to enjoy the Whedon players, but, um, but we, I'm getting distracted. We'll talk, I'm sure, more about election coverage and various... Like, provided Colbert's, we're not all dead. Provided we're not all dead um, next week. Uh, we'll, yeah, again, yeah. vote. <laughs> vote. Everyone who is an American citizen or person legally able to vote. And if you're not sure, find out so that you can go vote. Um, well, more on this next week it's when there's... 
when, when there theoretically will be lots of comedy and release of tension that we can talk about rather than anxiety. Uh, on, on a happier note, the, though I guess maybe a little conflicted, this week at the DVD shelf, we are very happy to welcome on uh, Angelica Bastien from Vulture and The Atlantic and like everywhere. She's pretty much taking over um, to talk about The Good Wife, which we had again. There's some conflicted feelings, over, like overall positive, but you know, it's so easy to get stuck on the, the, the negative of the end of The Good Wife. We, we, have, we have a lovely conversation coming at the end of the show about The Good Wife. Yeah, no, it's it's very good and uh, very multifaceted. Um, we cover like a lot of ground, yeah. Even if most of it's kind of the last couple of seasons and the show's issue, treatment of race, not the best, not the best. But overall, we all really like the show. <laughs> I mean, this this is a show that gave us David Lee in Gilbert and Sullivan costume. You know, like right. I mean, how you we can't stay angry at that. Can't do no. it. I can't do no. it. Um, well, this week we have lots of TV coming, lots of TV talk coming, lots of shows to talk about. So we should move on to our week in comedy. So we will take a break, listen to Maybe This Dream, sung by Dylan Champlin uh, from this last week's episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and come back with our week in comedy. We'll be right back after this. When I was a little girl, I felt like a princess. So naive and full of hope I thought my dreams would come true But then as I grew The world was all like (laughs) No But this time, maybe Just maybe Maybe this dream won't lead to disgrace Maybe this dream is in reach Maybe this dream won't poop on my face Like a seagull at the beach Maybe this dream won't be like my wedding The organ played, there goes the bride I came back this week in comedy, uh, we'll talk a bit about the Atlanta season one finale, The Jacket. Uh, then we'll talk about the People of Earth premiere. They had pilot and sponsored by were the first two episodes. Then I'll talk briefly about Stand Against Evil, which had its premiere on IFC, Dig Me Up, Dig Me Down. Uh, and quickly about the documentary now finale from last week, um, Mr. Runner Up, My Life is an Oscar Bridesmaids, part one and two. Then I have a few thoughts about Younger, Me, Myself, No, and Insecure, Thirsty as then uh, we'll talk some election comedy with Superstore, Election Day, and Fresh with the Boat, Citizen Jessica, before we round things out with Jane the, uh, Jane the Virgin, Chapter 47, and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, when we'll just see how cool I am, uh, as well as, of course, The Good Place, which had its fall finale. Um, so many comedies, Noel. Like, it's ridiculous. It's a treasure trove of comedies. Absolutely, and part of that is, is one we have not been talking about week to week. Uh, we've sort of gotten away from it, but we wanted to definitely talk about it here, and that's Atlanta, which wrapped up its its first season with the jacket. I thought this was a terrific first season. There's been lots of praise for it, I think, and well-deserved uh, going around. But um, it, just watching it, because I, I got behind, so then I caught up to it back to back to back. Uh, I don't know that for me it's one of the best first seasons of a comedy ever, the way that I've been hearing some people say. But I do think it's been really, really good, really strong, and very um, distinct in its voice and its approach. So uh, for someone who was just sort of not that excited, you know, just kind of low-key excited, but not, you know, 
foaming at the mouth, frothing at the mouth for for this season. I ended up being really pleased with that and very excited for what's going to come in the presumed season two. It's already been renewed, right? I assume. I nodded. Yes. It <laughs> what did you think of the jacket and the way the season one was shaped up for you? Um, well, I, I think like going back and like kind of focusing on some of the other episodes, uh, kind of helps put the show into perspective is that one of the things I mentioned, like right before we kind of like fell off talking about it was that I liked how the show kind of found different avenues to deal with just these people's lives, um, earn and, all these other folks around him and not so much like get too deep into the nitty gritty of trying to launch like a, a rap star career. And they found a really nice balance of when they needed to do that with like the nightclub episode, which is fantastic. It's really, really funny. Um, that, that the revolving door and like, just like so good. Right, no, I mean, he just, the promoter just keeps disappearing, just perfectly. And, I mean, at first you're just like, well, it's a club, it's really busy. And then you just watch him rotate around a secret door. And it's just like, oh, that's terrific. It's it's ridiculous, <laughs> but it's terrific. And so that kind of stuff worked really well. But more so than anything, what I ended up really lacking was that because of this kind of loose structure that it had, is that they could do just kind of random, seemingly random, but still deeply embedded black culture kind of commentary. So particularly I'm thinking, of course, of BAN, which is just their, okay, we're going to do 30 minutes of what it was like to watch BET. And it's a fantastically really funny episode. Um that lampoons just basically everything that if you'd ever watched BET, you're even just passingly familiar with. And it was just, it was very, very funny. And, but it was something that I didn't expect the show to do, let alone in its first season. And that they're willing to kind of flex that kind of comedic muscle, A, speaks to the what Glover's interested in in doing this show and the wider conversations he wants the show to engage in, which is really exciting to see. Uh, but also just the fact that he's got a cast with him that wants to do this kind of stuff. And I think that's really important. And that when we're having stuff like Greenleaf and also uh, something like Queen Sugar, um, that we've got another kind of ver a show from a black man that's interested in telling a type of a black experience through this kind of a heightened reality kind of comedic sort of lens and i really appreciate that that's a voice that's out there that can be heard um goes also nicely along with insecure which we'll talk about in a few minutes and i it's just a really good show um even stuff like the juneteenth episode is really really sharp and the show's use of and dissection of social media is also really, really sharp in ways that I feel like basically no other show understands social media quite as well as Atlanta understands social media. And yeah, so I've been talking for a few minutes. How are you feeling about, how did you feel about Atlanta as a whole and how it wrapped up? Well, you talked about uh, the BAN episode and just Brian Tyree Henry is so good throughout that episode. I mean, he's, he's really great throughout the season, but I, that, that was such a great uh, feature and spotlight for him. And, and yeah. there was, there was a lot of really terrific um, material. And then of course they had the fake ads and everything throughout that episode. And the, 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 the coconut 
what was it clusters or whatever serial yes. animated one was particularly um oh, so rough man yeah like, oh it's yep. good but yeah 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 <laughs> yep but what i would point to in that episode which uh for me also connects really strongly with uh juneteenth and just the series the first season here as a whole is the way that those two episodes keep setting up um characters and and then and then giving them new dimensions and giving them new perspectives and, and surprising you with, you know, who they are and what you think of them. And um, the, this, this is not a show that's interested in setting up stereotypes and setting up, um, you know, and, and letting you, it, it, it's happy to let you think you know everything there is to know about this character from one interaction or two interactions. And at times they do do that. Like, of course you think of the, the asshole in the premiere who uh, is, is dropping the N word uh, at very particular times, white guy dropping the N word. Um, But in, in, in both BAN and in Juneteenth, you think you have a a clear handle on somebody like Ban's mom or the, or, or the mom's husband. And then they'll, switch it up with you know how they respond to the ne- next bit of information how they respond to the next scene and the same thing happens in a really entertaining way throughout that uh, was it montague right yeah. conversation show in ban and i really appreciate the the you know that the, they they this you know clearly donald glover and the writers and directors here uh aren't interested in in simple characters or in in people that we might have seen on TV and letting you have someone figured out through just one or two exchanges. And I appreciate that. Um, that, that, that I appreciate that that seems to be a priority for them. Right. And it's very, it's super, 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 super character driven in a way that I don't think I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. And that was just a really pleasant surprise. And I'm not quite sure why I didn't expect it to be character driven um, going into it. Um, but given like Glover's interests, like even on Community, where it was just like, you could tell like he wanted to push Troy in some ways and the show just wasn't going to do that. And... So it was. It's interesting to see that kind of a sensibility come out. Um, I mean, like my only biggest hang-up was that we never saw him back at his part-time job ever again. Yeah, and I kept wondering how he was still even able to pay for certain things. But then they answered that question really quickly at the end of the finale, which is he's living in a he's living in a what call it a U storage unit, yeah. which answers that question of how he was affording things. It's He's living out of a used storage lot. Is mm-hmm. how that is the answer to that question, and it was just a really kind of yeah. It was just a really good moment for the show to show to end its first season on, uh, like the degree of sacrifices that he's basically made, willing to make to make all of this happen for literally everyone else, but also himself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just it's very very good. It's very sharp. Um, I I you questioned this idea of whether or not it works as like a really great first season comedy. So what stood out for you in the sense that where were like stumbles for you exactly? I don't, I wouldn't say there were stumbles, um, but I, I don't know. I, it's, I think maybe just some of this is, I enjoyed my time with the season, but it didn't blow my mind. It wasn't like something, sure. it, it's certainly much more confident than a lot of shows are in their first season, but I, I don't know. I feel like there's been a lot of buzz around this year as having the best freshman comedies in a long time. And 
I remember, was it last year or the year before we had, no, two years ago where there were like 20 really great first year comedies. So it's not that this, I just don't think that this is one of the all time great in the history of television first seasons. I think sure. it's really, really strong. And I look forward to seeing what's going to come next. I've appreciated its um, interest in all of its side characters. It never though made me that interested in Earn. Uh, mm-hmm. which it is fine if you're going to spend your time on the, you know, characters like Paperboy. And of course, the, the, the episode about Van, like we commented uh, previously, you had t- seen it. I hadn't seen it yet. It was just as terrific as you said. And um, just, it feels like I'm not trying to criticize or put down this season. Just for me, the I mean, I think I think the hyperbole I've seen around the show. I don't know that even hyperbole is the right word. I just think it connected with other critics other people more than it did with me uh i really enjoyed the season i think there was a lot of really great stuff in there and i'm certainly excited for next season but uh, this isn't one that i'm like dying to rewatch. you know what i mean yeah i do i do yeah i don't know what do you think i think a lot of it uh at least in terms of like the critical buzz is partly due to like just recency bias um yeah but also just a kind of like it fits nicely into a trend like how i mentioned it within the same breath as green leaf and um insecure and queen sugar um that it's like this sudden trend that we have four very good um black led um shows on the air um and produced and written and directed and produced right exactly and i mean to say nothing of like blackish in its third season underground underground this year earlier um which has totally faded away from the conversation and i Um, we'll talk more about that when we get to legends of tomorrow everyone (laughs) but anyways please continue right so it's one of those things where it feels very much of a trend within like a very compressed period and i think that that speaks to a lot of lot of where it's kind of coming from um i mean certainly i think it's a it's definitely for me anyway um i'm not willing to say like best freshman comedy in who knows how long because my brain doesn't work like that very well Mm -hmm. um in terms of remembering that kind of thing um but for me anyway like this is easily very much like a short list for on a short list for top 20 easily but maybe a top 10 as well when we get to the end of the year and i'll just have to like shuffle cards and see where it lands um because you know how much i hate actually physically (laughs) ranking things um but i think that there's still a very solid really funny really sharp show here um if only again just like i said towards the end it's just like the show's use of social media like it's just so good. Like, again, going back to that club episode and the invisible car ridiculousness. Oh, it's man. It's just fantastic. <laughs> I mean, there's no reason for that gag to be there, but it's there and it's hilarious. I had to go back and, like, I was like, wait, what did I just see? And I did, like, rewind it a couple times. Yeah, that was terrific. <laughs> right. And so I just, I really enjoyed how, even as sometimes I was just like, and a lot of it was also just like specificity as someone who's at least passing with familiar with Atlanta and how they managed to incorporate a lot of that stuff into the show um, was really, really great. Um, so yeah, I'm, it's definitely one of like the stronger freshman series this year for me, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, so I'm I'm pr- I'm pretty happy with Atlanta, and like you, I'm very excited to see a second season. Absolutely. Well, one that I have been looking forward to for, for quite a while that premiered finally this week was People of Earth, uh, pilot and sponsored by the first two episodes that aired on TV this week. There were some other episodes that got put up on the app that I haven't had a chance to. No, they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really confusing. Like some of them were on. Like they TBS like apparently made like the first four available like on the app or on on demand. But anytime I, like, tried to watch them, like, they kept telling me episodes two, three, and four weren't available on the app, but I could watch episode four and on demand. Yeah. And it's just like, uh, uh, make up your minds, but I guess I'll just record episode three, and then I'll watch episode four later. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is one that, I mean, I don't don't think anybody's going to say it's as good as Atlanta, or anything, but but it's very much in the TBS brand of silliness. It's about uh, um, a a reporter who goes to do a story about uh, uh, experiencers. So, uh, you know, they don't, they prefer that term over uh, abductees, alien abductee survivors, um, and gets kind of swept up into the crazy community of the small town. Uh, I really enjoyed the first episode at Comic-Con. I probably overhyped it a bit for you, but I still really enjoyed when I watched the second episode here, and I'm I'm game to watch the rest of the season. What did you think of People of Earth? I liked it as well. I do think that you maybe overhyped it a little bit, like mm-hmm. just a little bit, not much, but a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But I still really enjoyed uh, what I watched of the first two episodes. And I think a lot of it just had to do with the fact that the first two episodes are just like aggressively premise mm-hmm. Um, in, in that we have to establish everything before we can like really get the ball rolling, which is why I was really frustrated. I couldn't see like the third episode, which I'm just like, all right, they've settled everything at this point. We know that White Snack's old boss is a lizard man. Um, so we've established that. Um, he's working at the newspaper. He's got his sponsor. Um, character relationships are like coming into the forefront a little bit in the second episode. And so it's just like, I was ready for the third one, and now I just have to wait. Um, so they both just felt very premise-driven, premise which is fine. I mean, it's, it's a very high-concept sitcom with a very light seeming mythology attached to it as to what these three alien factions have planned for earth beyond apparently taking over the planet, I guess who knows Um, that I just needed that to get out of the way. So I could like get to basically how these people are living with their experiences and then living with one another as the only people who kind of understand what they're going through. And I'm really excited to see how that plays out and how this become the support group aspect of it really comes to the forefront. Uh, so I'm eager for that to happen on the show, but it's still a really, it's got a really great cast and it's very funny from the get go, I think. Um, and I'm eager for more mm-hmm. um, from it. Um, I just really just needed that third episode like immediately. I guess <laughs> for for me, I think um, I think my viewing of it at Comic Con was also really tremendously benefited by not knowing anything about it. When I started seeing ads for the show, I just I was just crestfallen because they were giving away all the things that made me laugh when I first saw it blind. So when the the pilot opens and White Snack is suddenly talking to a deer. Um, that just comes out of nowhere. But then I saw the very first ads for the show feature him talking to a deer. I'm like, well, okay, you've lost any element of surprise and you lose the twist at the end of the pilot. They were, was also highly featured in all the trailers and all the ads. And so I, I, 
I understand they need to get people to watch in the first yeah. place. I understand that, but it is, I think that does also take away from some of the, the enjoyment of it, at least the first time through for me was really the discovery of it and right. not having any idea what they were doing and, and not having a sense of what to expect. So, um, I was glad when the second episode was able to get me right back into that world and, and still sustained uh, my interest. I also think that the the first two episodes here do a really good job of introducing all these side characters. It's, it's we've seen a lot of shows like this, uh, especially network comedies, with a group of characters who are like a support group or at a you know coworkers or where there's just a bunch of quirky characters. And I feel like they do a better job in these first two episodes of making the support group feel like individual people rather than a series of quirks um and that some of that is also just going to be down to they have like you said a, they have a deep bench they have a really talented cast and so you know somebody like brian husky is gonna nail whatever you give him and bring other dimensions to it every time um let alone somebody like anna gasteyer oscar nunez these different people who um you know anybody who's been around comedy tv comedy sitcoms and everything and paying attention for the past 10 years 20 years will recognize a bunch of these people so uh for me very on board uh i was a little bummed to not see more discussion of it online but you know i guess it's it's tbs i shouldn't be too too surprised yeah Yeah. um yeah no it's tbs i think is one of the big reasons but also i think that so much like coverage is like getting sucked up within the current news cycle that a premiere this late kind mm-hmm. of thing just wasn't going to break through and it wasn't probably a high priority for a lot of folks either um so like I, like you i saw very little about it um and i saw very little about like one of the other shows you're going to discuss in a second and it was just like until i saw people mentioning this and the other one i just went, oh right that starts this week totally forgot yeah. um yeah, I, I feel like that this is something that people will probably latch on to maybe a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, like, it will it should, like, be paid more attention to. But, I mean, we felt that way about, like, Search Party as well. Like, no one was discussing Search Party. You mean, and, you don't mean Search Party. That hasn't started no, yet. That, you mean no, that, The Trip? I mean, What's it called? Uh, well, I do mean, like, The Detour, but I also the detour. mean Wrecked. Oh, yes, yes. Wrecked. No, Search Party. I actually did watch the premiere of Search Party because it's not on demand too, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> um, and so, like, Wrecked and The Detour. Um, the Detour got a fair amount of coverage, I think just because of the names involved. But, like, Wrecked just didn't get any attention. And it really should have because it was a very delightful, like, side summer sitcom. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm curious to see if more people latch onto it after, like, the election's done. And, but also once maybe the networks kind of go into reruns. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Because <laughs> yeah. it, it should be running straight through its season. So that, I could easily see this being one that people uh, catch up with later uh, when things are in reruns or just on a on yeah. a, a long day, on a day sick or something like that. It feels like the kind of thing that could, you could probably marathon. Um, another show like you, that you had mentioned that that, that um, people just seem to to miss, or certainly it slipped under the radar for me. I didn't know that it was happening until this week. Is Stand Against Evil, which premiered on IFC. The premiere is Dig Me Up, Dig Me Down, and the premise is basically John C. McGinley is the sheriff of a small town in New Hampshire, uh, whose wife uh, of at least twenty eight years passes away, dies um, in the before the events of the first episode, um, and at the wife's funeral, 
a, a witch attacks him and he attacks back, but nobody else seems to see her or think she's a witch or anything. So he has to retire in disgrace after attacking someone at the funeral. And um, we find out that basically uh, there's been this curse on this small town that every sheriff will die horribly uh, shortly after taking office because a sheriff a hundred and something years ago killed a bunch of witches and the last one or, or accused witches. We don't actually know if they were. Um, That's fair. Yeah, uh, and, and the, the the last one cursed all sheriffs of the of the town. Uh, but this, the thing is, John McGinley didn't realize he was essentially married to Buffy, so she was just like taking care of this stuff, oh, no. which is why uh, he didn't have any trouble the twenty eight years he was sheriff of this town because you know his wife was just kind of taking care of things uh, without him realizing it while he was just being a regular sheriff. Now that she's gone. He has to. Um, and Janet Varney is the new sheriff in town um, who shows up oh, to... Oh, that's fantastic. To take I love her. Yeah, she's 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 terrific. So the, the first episode, I think it's a really fun premise. Uh, you know, like, what if you're, you found out that you were basically married to Buffy, who was protecting the entire town, and just, like, didn't let work and life overlap too much. So, uh, and then, then now you have to take care of it. I think it's a fun twist on it. John McGinley, of course, is is terrific. He's a lot of fun in the central role. Uh, Janet Varney, anybody who's familiar with her work will not be surprised. She's very she's very good here. She's not given that much to do in this first episode. It's a very premise first episode. Uh, but I could see there being a lot of potential in this setup for fans of, you know, of campy horror or, or you know, just like a twist on the the Buffy setup. Um, what if Xander had to take over <laughs> sort of a thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's not like, it's not going to be essential viewing for a lot of people, but anybody who's a fan of John C. McGinley or Janet Varney will probably enjoy it. Anybody who is in- intrigued by the premise of the show, I think check it out. It's, it's again, it's, it's a good match with some of it's not on TBS, but it's a match with some of the tone of the other shows we've seen from them where it's kind of quippy. It's light. It's, it's, um, it's pretty frothy and there's decent, to me at least, being not the biggest horror person. There's some decent effects and, and ghoulish makeup and stuff. It's it's silly enough that um, it's not, it, you know, it can have tongue firmly in cheek, but it's not glib to the point where that gets old. So I think they balance things well in this first episode. And if you're interested, check it out. You'll probably be happy. Well, you've convinced me. I While you were talking, I just went ahead and bought the first two episodes on Amazon. Um, <laughs> there so <laughs> there you go. Um, you had me at Janet Varney. How, Janet Varney. So I was just like, yep, I'm in. I'm good with that. Because um, I always, like, I mean, I know her from, like, like TBS's, like, Dinner and Movies, still speaking of, like, TBS when she mm-hmm. was on that. Because t- Dinner and a Movie on TBS was my jam when I was a teenager, which is the saddest thing in the world to admit. <laughs> um, so, no, so I'm excited. I'll watch those probably after we finish recording. Yeah, I look forward to hearing what you think about it. Um, the next show I have here is Documentary Now, which had its finale last week, uh, but I wanted to, to mention it because it's been a really strong second season for them. This one, it was the two-parter that ended up this season, was Mr. Runner-Up, My Life as an Oscar Bridesmaid, Part 1 and 2, which is, I believe, a take on The Kid Stays in the Picture. But once again, I haven't actually seen the documentary that this is based on, so I can't, uh, can't speak to that. But what I do enjoy is that this is... Uh, this is about a fictional producer of Hollywood movies um, who, like, 
of movies such as uh, Koreatown, the year after Chinatown, and Rabbi Detective, the year after The Exorcist, and uh, or Detective Rabbi, I think it was what it was. Anyways, um, but it's it's they what's really fun about it besides just it's it's well written. It's it's a lot of it's just a a fun look at Hollywood uh, producers and all of those stereotypes. Um, through the 70s, um, you know, like 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, like that. Um, but uh, I've been catching up with You Must Remember This, the Karina Longworth podcast, and listening to a bunch of actual stories from Hollywood uh, through these decades. So to watch this after you know listening to all of those was particularly entertaining for me. Uh, they did a really good job matching some of the personalities and really fitting with that um, yeah, it's, it's the stuff that they do in this, this these two episodes is very believable. <laughs> the writing is very believable. And they also uh, have actors and uh, directors come on as to talk about their rem- rem- reminiscences of this fictional character. So they have, like, Peter Bogdanovich, they have Mia Farrow, they have Peter Fonda, they have a bunch of different people um, talking about their memories of Jerry Wallach of Pinnacle Pictures. Um, and so it's just... It it was really fun, and uh, my 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 hat is off to the the lovely people over at Documentary now for for finding a niche, doing it really well, and and getting out before it got tired um, in the first season as well as the second. So keeping it to only six episodes, I think, was really smart, and I look forward to what they're going to do next. Um, I, I you haven't seen any of these, right? Nope, not a single one. Yeah. Uh, so, cause you, you've seen more of the documentaries, so you'd be more able to speak to yeah. that part of it. But, um, yeah, it just, it's, I had a lot of fun with this season and it's certainly one that, uh, I'm glad that we can have space in our TV world for something like this now, which would not have been possible before platinum age. So way to go documentary now crew. Uh, another show that I haven't talked about recently, but I am still really enjoying is Younger, Me, Myself, and O. I wanted to mention this one, though, uh, because I think they're, they're getting to the point in this third season of Younger where they have their love triangle, um, but they're, they're moving, they're starting for the first time to, like, I think overly tip their hand to where they're heading with it, um, to the point where... I think I think they're just not quite keeping it balanced enough. They're they're clearly playing what their end of season couple is going to be, or the movements are going to be. They're having you know some of the core characters, the core relationship, kind of grow apart in a way that feels very natural. But if they're, they're not going to commit to that before the season finale, it's I think it's a little early for that. Uh, they're again, I just keep saying tipping their hand because that's the right term for it. Uh, so, so while I'm still really enjoying younger, it's always one of the most, uh, again, like popcorn, frothy, uplifting, fun shows that I watch each week for the first time, a little, I think they could do better. I think they could do better with their, uh, their handling of that central potential love triangle dynamic that they aren't at yet, but it will, you know, you know, they're like leading to one of those, you know, right? Yeah. that's, that's where they're at right now with that. Um, so Still really enjoying it. Hopefully they can recalibrate that a little more effectively. Um, Insecure had Thirsty as this week, and I caught back up with the show, and it's terrific, and I'm so glad to be caught up. Um, yeah, the the way that they're handling the characters on Insecure reminds me of, of Atlanta, uh, where they're letting, especially listening to like Molly, you think you know who, like what the dynamics are from the first episode, but actually they're a lot more... I don't know. The, the the friendship is a lot closer and a lot more uh, 
grounded than maybe it seems like it is based on their interactions in the first episode, um, Issa and Molly's interactions. I really appreciate this um, willingness to show friendships that don't, that, that can have fights, that can have complications, but are still really grounded in, in commitment and years of, of friendship together. And, um, the ability to, for, for people to call out when their friends are messing up or their family are messing up, uh, without underlining, without like really, uh, forgetting that these characters do really love each other and do really have that strong connection. What I kept coming back to with Insecure and in especially in like second and third episodes, and I'm curious if, if you'd agree, Noel, is the, the way that they keep having when Issa is, you know, having re relationship trouble with her long-term boyfriend, the way they do keep having her say, I love him, but, or yeah, they always gave enough weight to, I love him. And I, I really appreciate the way they kept coming back to it. So they're struggling, but they don't let the characters forget that this is a relationship grounded on something real. And there's a reason she hasn't just like ditched this guy. Um, and he hasn't just ditched her or, or whatever. I, I, I think that the, that makes the situation much, much more complicated and much harder if there is that true grounded grounding of the relationship in love, in respect, that is just struggling right now. Um, so I think I th it's been really effective for me. Uh, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I agree. Like when you were talking about like the different facets of that, the show was giving to Molly, I was just like, but Lawrence yeah. is just like, so not what you expect based on the pilot where he's just like sitting there, not doing anything and just kind of seeming just like unambitious mm -hmm. in in a very negative way as opposed to he's just stuck is the same way that Issa's stuck as well um in just kind of a different way and the the progressive shading of him trying to find a job of settling for a job and then like pushing back against that job in a couple of ways of i don't know anything about washers and dryers um, is just really, really great that the show gives him that room, basically. And it helps make that central conflict of their relationship much more powerful. Like, I mean, if it's, it's one thing to say, I love him, but basically, and have us see it, but it's another thing for us to have it be very directly expressed in a way that you can understand where she's coming from when she says, I love him, but. Mm -hmm. um, after we get him, Lawrence gets fleshed out a little bit as opposed to, well, but why do you love him sort of thing? Yeah. And then it's just like, well, this is why, like, I mean, he's, he's not trying to settle. He's just has, he's just stuck and he doesn't know what to do. And he just he can't make up his mind and he doesn't want to settle for something, but he has to basically. And I like how they're just like, building up to a number of like different things with their relationship and how they're interacting, whether it's through them getting rid of the old couch and getting a new couch. That or... that montage, by the way, so good. So good. So good. Serious just... contender for Smorgasbordy best montage. Yeah. It's, re it's really, really good. And it's very sharp and it feels just deeply motivated within that moment. Um, that's it's just really, really good. But then also, like, the very obvious thing with the bank teller doesn't make me cringe because it just feels like a good complication within this confines of whether or not 
he's settling with Issa, then it's like, well, here's an alternative that I don't have to feel like I'm settling for. This is a more proactive ex- proactive movement on my part type of thing or however he wants to feel about it and i'm just intrigued by how that gets played out then on the rest of the show so i'm i'm just really excited about this show and what it wants to keep doing and how it's going to do that like even like when you're talking about molly i'm just very excited by how the fact that we're talking about Issa and lawrence is being very stuck molly in the same way feels also just very stuck and how that this feeling of stuckness of being trapped within certain cultural confines, certain cultural uh, expectations plays over, even though she's significantly upper, more upper class and has more financial stability than Lawrence Nisa does, is like she has her own set of very frustrating issues through dating and through her workplace environment. And it's just... It's very nuanced and thoughtful, but also still ridiculously very, very funny. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm just really into this show. Yeah. Well, and what's really fun about the dynamics they've set up for the different relationships is this idea of settling and the ways in which either romantic decision that Lawrence or Issa or Molly could make or Molly, yeah. would also be settling. So yeah. do they settle for the relationship they're already in or do they break up and she settles for her high school boyfriend who there, there's a way that that is settling because it's a known quantity theoretically, or is that the risk or is it the risk to stay committed to this person who's in a, having a hard time now, but could go somewhere, you know, like what, the, what is, the, what is the risk and what is the settle and aren't they both both and that's so much more interesting um they they pack so much story into an episode uh the the dynamics of the characters but also just plot like the beach episode when they do she has the trip to the beach i had to remind myself that there were only on episode four because that felt like that was a several episode arc right but just in one. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that. And they continue to use in sort of, I mean, we talked about The Good Wife this week in the DVD shelf, and sort of a continuation uh, development of their, like, memory pops thing. The, I continue to love the the shots of um, how Issa would like to respond to stuff and her conversing in the mirror or just to herself. And then cutting back to what she actually says uh, is terrific and continues to be one of my favorite parts of the show. So yeah, really enjoying insecure and not missing divorce at all. I haven't gone back to it. Have you? Oh God, no, I've not gone back to divorce. Are you kidding me? Um, like I was tempted to uh-huh. just for like sheer morbid curiosity, but then I just went, but I can wa- have all these insecures I can watch instead. Well, and you and, still haven't seen Catastrophe, right? No, I haven't seen Catastrophe. Oh, yeah. Yet. Watch Catastrophe way before you watch more. Di- <laughs> I say this only having seen one episode of Divorce, but I mean, if you're going to watch a Sharon Horgan show, watch the one she's actually in, you know? <laughs> Anyways, instead we were watching uh, our, our election episodes here on, on sitcoms. And this week we had, last week, of course, we had all the Halloween episodes. This week we had, uh, there are a couple different election ones. I think there's at least one next week too. But this week we had Superstore Election Day and Fresh Off the Boat, Citizen Jessica. And I just, these were both terrific. These are so much fun. They were, though, like, I mean, I was talking with Miles uh, McNutt um, a little bit on Twitter because he was just kind of getting upset about, like, polling 
uh, like voting. Uh, Missouri is a swing state. He was just like, Missouri's not a swing state. Mm-hmm. And I was mostly just upset that people were campaigning in the store when Missouri has a no no campaigning within 25 feet of a polling place. Mm-hmm. And I just went, but that's the problem. <laughs> not that Missouri's not a swing state. <laughs> um, so, but no, like both of these episodes are very, very good in very different ways. I think that Superstore does a very kind of broader, kind of wackier approach, which is as which is what they do. Um, approach to like electioneering and how basically that the whole button of the election officials going oh, 53 ballots were lost that's less than last year <laughs> type of thing is very very funny um, I like that it's pitted like Dina against Glenn which is creates a very different kind of dynamic in terms of like how they interact with one another um, and I so yeah it was just a very fun very silly way of approaching election um i think that my only like big question about this superstore episode has absolutely nothing to do with election humor and everything to do with the fact that jonah has a maybe girlfriend and how we're supposed to feel about how amy's responding to that yeah yeah because i was just like but but you're 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 I think happily married unless I missed some stuff in season one because I didn't watch all of season one. And, but now I don't know, but you're making googly eyes kind of a little mm-hmm. bit like very small googly eyes and feeling frustrated, frustrated by it. And I don't know what to do with that. And aside from be like, but your central thing is that they're not interested in each other. And that was nice. <laughs> yeah. But they've been, they've been playing with that all season though. And, yeah. and even towards the end of last season. And I think it's just because the actors have terrific chemistry. And, and so I actually appreciated that they give Amy the opportunity to like they, they previously in the, the last episode, the one before that had Jonah realize, Oh, there's a little bit more here than I want there to be. Okay. I should work on that. And then here they let Amy through <laughs> their other coworker whose name escapes me. And who's, she has to tell to not just kiss her twice. Um, realize, Oh, there's been some, there's something next level, like inappropriate with our friendship that I should be aware of too, that I didn't want to necessarily admit to myself, but it's clearly there. And so I need to be more aware of it. And so I think that's a good way to go with it. If if, either it pretended like just get rid of the chemistry between them somehow, um, or acknowledge it and then let that complicate things and let that affect their dynamic. And hopefully without having some unfortunate, like, will they, won't they back and forth, which I don't think the show's going to do. I think if they were going to do that, they wouldn't have given her a husband and kid in the first season. Um, But I I like this idea of them having to navigate that as they still work together. And they still are basically work wives and husbands, you know, each other's work buddy. Um, Cause that's, I mean, it seems like that's gotta be a really I mean, I'm not married, but it seems like that's got to be a reality for a lot of people when you're spending that much time with, with coworkers and, you know, it's, you'd imagine that, that these bonds can develop. And so then you have to deal with what that means and, and keeping track of being, you can't just like not be around people of the opposite gender ever. And like, if you have, if you have a good friend, somebody that you click with, that should be a good thing in your workplace and make your day at Walmart. Sorry, cloud nine better um so so i think it's 
I would Cloud hope... Nine is clearly Target. It's not. It's clearly Walmart, but it's nicer than Walmart, is, so it feels like Target. <laughs> but but I like that they hopefully. I don't know. I mean, I have faith in the writers. I think that that, that there could be a lot of fun things for them to explore and develop here if they want to. Um, so I have my fingers crossed on that. The other thing I'll say about this episode is that a good gauge of it is as I was watching the episode, my brother came in partway through and watched just like a few minutes before he had, he had to head out and he was laughing out loud. So clearly mm-hmm. even someone who hasn't seen the show before is, was connecting to it. So that always makes me happy. Makes, you know, it's not just us. Noel. it's not just us. Um, so it, usually the shows that I watch, uh, if my family isn't also really closely watching them, they just kind of look at me funny and go, I don't, Okay. I get that with comedies. Yeah, I get that with comedies. Yeah. I like yeah. something mainstream for once. This is nice. <laughs> well, as mainstream as a comedy on NBC on Thursdays can get. Yeah. Touche. <laughs> Touche. Well, any other thoughts on Superstore? Or if not, what did you think of Fresh Off the Boat? Yeah, Fresh Off the Boat was really good this week. Um, just from a whole slew of perspectives. Um, from the importance of voting. Um, which was great. Um, but also like the mathematical issues of voting to, oh yeah, no, sure. Go ahead. Vote for the third party candidate. And then I'll just vote for this chair. (laughs) (laughs) Um, was, uh, despite the fact that it was taking place in 1996 and was dealing with the Clinton Dole election, um, it was very clearly aimed at being about this election uh, as its central push was about a a immigration um, reform initiative, and Jessica taking a very staunch "I came through this country legally" type of thing, and not being in favor of whatever, like however it was supposed to play out, and then like I just thought my green card was permanent. <laughs> <laughs> And how that played out, and I, I mean, it was a very kind of standard, I think, immigrant um, comedic plot of finding out that you're not exactly a citizen, or you're not, you're not, she wasn't a citizen beforehand, but like her ability to stay in the country was no longer up to date. And so I enjoyed like <clears throat> that eye opening of an experience of, well, this is actually really perilous, even for me, someone who did this correctly. And that I shouldn't be so hard on people who have not done this correctly or are doing it for the correct reasons, but just didn't do this how I did this type of thing. And I think that there's just a there's a very again, there's a very strong current of this year's immigration discussions happening within this episode, which is an important thing for the show to acknowledge as the episode hammers home is that they're they're immigrants and and even driven home by the fact that this feels very much like a good bookend to the premiere in a lot of ways of going back to, to where they come from and then coming back and dealing with this kind of an issue. And I feel like that that is, even if it wasn't an intentional balance, it feels like a very good way of balancing out the whole experience of like this first chunk of the season. Um, how did you feel about this episode? And um, did you also like... I have not seen and super and superstore also had this have are you familiar with like ballot polling places being in places like restaurants and stores because in my experiences they're all in elementary school gyms <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like is that a thing in other places well certainly churches yeah, I'm very no, familiar like churches, with right yeah. yeah yeah no I'm not familiar with it being in uh restaurants uh mm-hmm. but I why not 
Yeah, it was I know. like, and I, I now I live in a vote by mail state, so like they just mailed me my ballot, and I filled it out while I was watching The Exorcist <laughs> a week ago, and that's how I voted. <laughs> Do they send you a sticker? No, they don't send a sticker. They should it's send bullshit. a sticker. They should. Apparently, like you can also like drop it off in like a polling box that are located around like your precinct and allegedly there are stickers there uh-huh. but why would i do that when i have stamps <laughs> <laughs> so that you can get the sticker the sticker is a hot commodity i appreciated that subplot on on uh, superstore um yeah. the, the thing i really appreciate about this episode aside from the tupac subplot which i thought was oh, key gosh. and we, so well included yeah. here um yes. is that it really i, I appreciate the the way it treats immigration and the the politics of immigrants as not just a a broad they don't just paint with a broad brush. Jessica, I'm sure if uh, she, she still has very strong feelings about people who come into the country illegally. Now, with their particular person they're dealing with who works for the store, he didn't make the choice to come in illegally. He was a kid, so that's yeah. a different situation. She's going to be a very different. Yeah. She's right. going to be much more understanding of that. Yeah, but but she, I don't think her opinion on people who come in illegally has changed at all by the yeah. end of this episode. And and I appreciate that they that they don't try to paint with you know again with a broad brush. They 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 let these nuances come through because I think it's very easy in you know as we're looking at political math and looking at different you know demographics of voting and everything to just assume well you're fill in the subset so that means obviously you have to be fill in the the political opinion uh, party, you know, pro or con different political stances. And, and I, I, I think it's good to, to, to just to, to talk about that and to include that as part of, um, part of an election episode, especially one with the specific lens of fresh off the boat. Um, so, you know, but it, things become more simplistic by the end of the episode, but I, I, for me, at least it didn't, feel like a betrayal of who Jessica was or, or, you know, how she feels about these different issues. I also like that they uh, acknowledge so clearly in this episode, the hurdles that come to the right to vote. And it reminded me of course of, um, when Jane the Virgin has taken on citizenship in, in the past when they're like, yeah, no, this can really happen. Hashtag vote, you know, all of that. Uh, and, and just looking at even somebody like Jessica could theoretically get thrown out of the country for a misunderstanding with her, with her green card or her permanent residence status yeah. or whatever it was. Um, I don't think a show like this or Jane will be brave enough to have someone apply for citizenship and fail or have, have to go back to Mexico for 30 days and not be able to get back in the country, which certainly could happen to, to the character here, but is not going to, because that would be, that would be depressing. Um, which makes it much easier to say, oh, just do this, and then you're here legally, and then it's all good. It's easy to say that when you're a sitcom, so you know that you'll be let back in the country. Um, but uh, I, I do appreciate the conversation. And uh, again, they did, they, they're doing all this conversation about politics and being funny, which is, right. you know, what's really uh, you know, a, a, a sitcom that wants to take on these issues needs to also be. You can talk about a lot of stuff if, your if your main uh, priority is to be funny, you can talk about a lot of issues as long as you're still funny. Um, and so that's uh, you know I, I appreciate that they do both here that they always keep going back and forth between these different subplots, most of which could have been very serious that they wanted to, but instead kept it in the realm of comedy. 
Right. And I think that, like, to your point, to a much more, like, do you see what we're doing here, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, with the Tupac subplot of, well, we disagree, but we can all agree that Tupac was really good type of thing. We can find common ground here type of a situation. And then we can also find out that Tupac's still alive, um, because obviously he is, but it was probably Suge. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just that whole thing was really, really good, but it was also, you had to be aware of what they were trying to express of, there's common ground here. We can we can disagree with each other and not lose our lunch table to the guy who likes Morrissey. <laughs> <laughs> the, the flower. It's back pockets. I'm sad. Type mm. of no. So I really appreciated that because like for me, like that 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 particular subplot really resonated because a lot of like my anxiety about the election is much more about what happens after the election, not so much the the election itself, um, particularly if like Clinton is elected and my anxieties around the saber-rattling saber that some of the GOP Senate members have been engaging in within the past week and that kind of a thing. So it's just like, well, if these teenagers in 1996 can come together over the fact that Tupac is still alive, surely you can, you can commit to filling the Supreme Court. I'm just saying um you're you have to be more mature than these new fresh high schoolers right yes um so i really enjoyed that aspect of it um but yeah no two very solid like election election driven episodes yeah yeah uh next up is an eventful and a long anticipated episode of jane the virgin chapter 47 jane the virgin is no longer a virgin and I love the way that they handled this, that it's not some big, very special episode, that it's not, you know, a cliffhanger. But it's just, again, as we've talked about previously, the more interesting part of Jane the Virgin, um, like of Jane no longer being a virgin, is all the stuff that, all the stories that that opens up afterwards, all those different things, the new dimensions it gives to the character and the dynamics. And I think this was an excellent first entry into Jane has now had sex and what does that mean? And all the baggage that must come with being a married mother of a, of a baby who was still a virgin. Like that's gonna mess with your head. I don't care who you are. (laughs) No, I, I think that it's just, it's handled with a lot of grace. I mean, there's so many, like I had sex for the first time and it was a horrible mistake type of shows. And that is just like, that's no type of thing or I did it with the wrong person or I did it with the right person, but it just didn't work. Or, or I had sex for the first time and it was magical, you know? Right. And yeah. in this, in this case, she's just like, it was a thing that happened and I had to fake my orgasm because I just wanted it to just be special type of thing. And there's just so many layers to this episode and how she responds to it that just feel really grounded in her experience um, that even something is ridiculous, but also really heavily telegraphed by the fact that that laptop never has a webcam on it, except right except, then. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And it was just like, oh God, I know what's going to happen. I already see this happening and I'm okay with it, but I just, you're just telling me what's going to happen because that laptop never has a webcam on it. Um, <laughs> and also I'm really surprised that that doesn't that laptop didn't have a webcam built in, but neither here nor there. Um, 
type of thing. So I was just like, there were so many things that were right and how they handled this from her dealing with it, her talking to other people about it, her talking to Michael about it, to her talking to her advisor about it after she sends her advisor her sex tape. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the advisor realizing, oh... Oh, that's the issue. That that's, explains so much. That's <laughs> everything that's wrong with your writing is that there's no sex in this because you haven't had any. And I think that that's just a really interesting like dynamic from to explore from a writer's standpoint of a write what you know, but you don't know this, but you understand how this all works in like a telenovela romance sort of way, but those aren't the best representations of sex in a lot of ways. So you don't know how exactly it, makes you feel or how it makes other people feel. And I think that that's a really good way of exploring that she's able to internalize how she was feeling about it through writing about it in her novel. And I think that that's a really meaningful way of dealing with Jane and Jane's working through everything. So I couldn't like between this and like Zoe's abortion last week, it's just, they've been doing a really great job with this was a woman's experience dealing with X And it was just really pleasant and really pleasing to watch. Well, and even more with the writing for for Jane, even more than just the act of having physically had sex, it was about... And her not having had sex, so that was that was affecting her writing. But her not realizing just how many issues she had around her sexuality and around all of this, like her being blind to that, uh, was, was must have been affecting her writing as well. And so... You know, having a difficult time with you know, initially interacting with Michael sexually, and then that opening her eyes to all this baggage with the flower and with these different, you know, with all everything that came with it. I loved her conversation with her mom, um, particularly that more. I think even more than finally connecting with Michael sexually is what got things going for it to fix her writing and, and her approach to her characters. Um, I also got to say, I love the way that they handled Michael in this too, and how he was experiencing and, and his frustration with the, the, he's, he married Jane, which means he should know that we don't talk about this with anyone. It's like, she's trying, you know, you got to appreciate, I appreciated that Dina um, said she, well, she wouldn't tell me anything because that's, at least, you know, it's like she tried to not tell anything. Um, I, I really liked his, his perspective and the respect given to him. And also, so glad that, like, Raph and and Petra and Vests were nowhere near this, which is exactly... Except in the background. You could see, right actually, Ineska and Vests, like, kind of, like, canoodling in the background while Jane was talking about her experience. But they never, ever came forward in the episode in any way. Yeah, which was the right way, I think, to, yeah. to handle it. Um, instead, we got paired with more stuff with uh, with um, Sinrostro, Rose, um, and Louisa. What did you think about that? <laughs> Just a submarine with butlers that goes around the Great Barrier Reef. <laughs> you know, like you do. A, I don't think the Great Barrier Reef is a circle. <laughs> but B, it's just, it's really ridiculous. And um, I'm also not entirely sure, like, what to do with, like, Louisa being back in the fold yet again um, type of thing because it's just a lot of this is just feeling kind of like dragged out even though now Mooder's dead um, from afar assassinated from her Bible or whatever happened 
um, that I'm just not entirely sure that I need this additional layer of criminal masterminding happening when I'm ever dealing with like the Inesca and the Petra stuff and whatever they're trying to do by getting the Marbella, um, that I, I kind of don't need this extra layer anymore. Um, because the Inesca stuff is way more like to the forefront in a way that uh, the Sinrostro uh, stuff is not right now. Because again, it's happening mostly on a submarine that's going around in circles around the Great Barrier Reef. Um, and also, I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that I know Louisa just never gets to stick around very long. I mean, we're three seasons in. She'll pop up three episodes and then disappear for another five and then come back when another big plot development for this needs to happen. And I'm kind of just like, either dedicate it to it and kind of maybe wrap it up in a way and introduce something else within this kind of big crime telenovela sort of way or just stop doing this particular one is kind of how I'm feeling about it at this point. Um, but I may change my mind next week because I really like Rose. I really like Louisa, but it's just like, I'm, I want these characters to do something as opposed to just, move pieces around which is where i'm feeling like we're still in doing because we're so early in the season uh, yeah. what about you how are you feeling about that i was surprised by how much i was enjoying it because i was okay. ready for rose and all of that to be done um so i was <laughs> i was very pleasantly surprised with how much i was enjoying that that corner of the show and of course the stuff with with zoe was t- really terrific i thought that was really a, a needed like counterbalance to the zaniness of the stuff we had going on with the cw <laughs> Um, uh, that was really nice. And the, the Estefans, you know, being in this episode, uh, if we didn't have such a terrific crazy ex-girlfriend, uh, song to feature, I probably would have featured leading into the segment, um, Zoe singing, which was, which was really nice. Um, yeah, I thought, you know, like they, again, they, they continue to balance the different tones of the show really well and to, to, to be able to go back and forth without giving the audience whiplash and, and deal with really significant issues. And like as someone who's an artist getting to the point where it's not worth it anymore, they, they can just enjoy doing their creative pursuit, whatever it is part time and have a different career. And that's okay. And when is that giving up? When is that settling? And when is that healthy and a, a sign of positive growth? Um, I, I enjoy the show tackling that, or at least starting to tackle that with, with Zoe, um, and not just have like a, never give up, never, you know, like, you can always do it, even though you're trying to break through as a singer in your 40s, like, that's, that doesn't happen, doesn't really happen, I mean, every now and again you get a Leslie Jones, who who breaks through and becomes a huge celebrity in her 50s, that normally, no, 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 doesn't happen. So I, I appreciate the 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 direction they seem to be taking Zoe and the questions they they look like they'll be asking with her, um, and I, I trust these writers to do uh, a thoughtful exploration of that. Right. Um, it felt very weird to have the Estefans um, show up for this. Um, in a lot of ways, I understand why they're there and the motivations to get them there make sense to me. And I like kind of like the lampshade hanging of they're very much a 20 year favor mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, type of thing. But yeah, it just kind of felt weird because I feel like we didn't necessarily need them there to wrap, to put the story in a in perspective, basically. And, um, yeah, so, but it was there to represent, like, the trade-offs that Rogelio's willing to do for his professional advancement versus Zoe's professional advancement. And that's why it's there. Um, but it still just kind of felt weird, um, at the same time to me. 
Okay. Um, I guess, like, my only other question for you is, how much do you want Rogelio not to get famous in the United States so we can have Rob Lowe show up? <laughs> oh, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. That's pretty fun. Uh, huh. I'm just thinking now of the grinder and Tim the Elephant. Yes, exactly. And, like, the layers <laughs> of all of that. Uh, I think it'll be a fun subplot. And, yeah, we'll just have to we'll have to see... Also, the idea that the CW can afford Rob Lowe makes me laugh. Well, (laughs) the grinder just did, you know, went off the air after one season. Yeah, maybe maybe his asking price is going down. Well, or maybe he's just looking for something different to do. But I can't imagine. Rob Lowe's got Rob Lowe money. He's probably doing just fine. Um, we should move on, though, to our next show. And that we still have a couple more here in the Week in Comedy. Oh, it's going to be a long episode today. Uh, we have Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, When Will Josh See How Cool I Am? And we had a, a paddle, a ping pong, uh, table tennis uh, montage with a ridiculous entertaining This Is How Guys Sing song. We had the Disney Princess song, which was amazing. Uh, what were the, There were two more songs. What else was there this week? Were there two more songs? Those are there the were, only two there I were remember. Four. Oh no, there was Greg's um, Irish drinking song of why I shouldn't drink anymore because yep. I have sex with a bush. And um, then we had I could if I wanted to reprise. reprise or right. was that last we, week? That was last week, yeah. That was but last we, week, okay. We did have um I definitely certainly have friends reprises twice with two different characters. I know, it's so cool. I love when they they're keep throwing that in the scoring at opportune yeah. moments. And I, I just love the, again, the more they treat this as a musical and not a show that has songs, the more affecting it is. So when they have reprises like like those, it, it always is more affecting to me. Well, I was just glad that they that they held because, like, I watched the screener of this and it was incomplete. So, like, some of the special effects weren't done and, like, it still had, like, the timestamps for a lot of it on there. So I wasn't exactly sure if that was just, like, inserted music to like fill a gap before something else was going to be scored for it mm-hmm. so i was really glad like when i saw people tweeting about it that night that they mentioned the reprises and i just went oh thank goodness because they worked so perfectly why would you take them out um that i was really happy that they were there and they were timed just like really perfectly and also just daryl being like ned stark dies but he's the whole show <laughs> <laughs> don't get too attached to rob either and just like yes um but no so um <clears throat> i really like paula's song a whole lot like uh, ping pong girl is fine um but it's like paula's song like the entire way like it's so sleeping beauty going through the forest talking about just all of it like i really loved how it mixed like that kind of fairy tale longing with occasional crassness and I I just really, really enjoyed Paula's song a whole lot, but I also really enjoy Paula's songs in general because they don't give her very many songs. Um, so I, I was really excited about that. And I was excited about that plot of Rachel's just kind of a shitty friend sometimes <laughs> all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time. Rebecca. But sh- Rebecca, sorry. Gosh, she shouldn't do that. <laughs> Two RBs is not fair. Um, so, like, Rebecca's a really shitty friend. And that even though she writes a really nice letter, it's just like, I get it. And Paul is very understanding of how that plays out. Um, more understanding than she maybe should be, I think. But 
<laughs> she she understands Rebecca very, very well. So it's just like, I'm going to learn ping pong from Albert Tsai, and so I'm going to be too busy to write your recommendation letter. I'm sorry about that. Um, but I, I still really enjoyed like how all of that played out, and I liked how everyone responded to Greg coming clean with his alcoholism, and his number was really, really great. I'm glad that they dived into, like, period costuming for that number, plus a filter, mm-hmm. so that it felt very old school. Um, and I liked just, oh, no, I'm not, I wasn't here to find you. I just like ducks, too, um, <laughs> type of thing. So I am, even though Rebecca is kind of a crap friend to Paula, she's a good friend to Greg, but also because she still kind of wants to get with Greg because, yeah, because she's Rebecca. Um, <clears throat> how did you feel about the episode? Well, I think what this episode shows, yeah, she's being a crap friend, but it's also, it's baby steps. She never once tries to, to, to wrangle, uh, um, Paula into it, Paula into her shenanigans. She respects the contract and she doesn't get her, her letter in time, which is a clear failure of their, of her as a friend. But she also is like, she's getting better. I think with how she's interacting with Paula is healthier. She's letting her interactions with Paula mostly be about Paula. And I think that's needed. So, um, yeah, it's still shitty, but again, baby steps and, um, the stuff that I, I mean, I I really appreciate the end of the episode. I think, I feel like that's such a huge thing for Rebecca to say is I deserve to be treated better than this. And, um, and there didn't seem to be, there wasn't really accusation in that so much of, to me at least, so much as realization. And her, yeah, her her realization of that I think was key. Her knowing where where Greg would be is telling. Um, there's a lot to, to really connect to in the characters' relationships with this episode. But there's also Father Bra having smoothies, having boba, and like, and only one dinosaur donut? Dude, come on. <laughs> What are we supposed to do with that? Yeah. Um, <coughs> poor guardrail. Um, yeah, I mean, they're filling out a really nice, like, season two type of world. Um, and I always like when, like, recurring characters come back. So, like, Josh's, like, entourage of um, friends, and especially why Josh, who's just the best. Yeah. He's, He's kind of judgy. I love that they're giving him more characters than just white Josh, who is who is gay. Or right. Bi. No. Yeah. yeah. He's, 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 he's gay. Yeah. And, and he's, he's also judgy. He's also judgy. He's Judge Reinhold, not a real judge. <laughs> <laughs> but he's also Chip Hunk. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that, and Chip Hunk felt like such a specific nickname that I'm convinced that that's a nickname they use for that actor behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Because, yes. <laughs> um, so, no, I'm really excited how they're um, filling out this world. Um, but I also feel like it's. Yes, she knew where Greg was, but she knew where Greg was because of Paula mm-hmm. <laughs> and Paula's uh, computer magic of being able to triangulate cell signals, um, which, yeah, so it's just like she still needed Paula in that instance, basically, to know how to find Greg. And um, I think that that's kind of an underplayed type of thing within there, but um, and how Paula is still helping 
um, even after the fact. Um, but no, still a really good episode. Um, have you seen, because it was getting passed around a lot this week. Have you already watched like the big song from this no. week's episode? No, good I'm for keeping... you for showing some self-restraint. Yeah, I'm keeping everything in context. Um, I don't want to. See it until it's part of the episode, so okay, I don't good. know anything about it, so don't tell me anything. I, I wasn't going to, so mm-hmm. no, I was just curious, because when I started seeing articles about it, I just went, guys, it's a really good number. You didn't need to do this until, I get why, yeah. because no one's going to read it on Saturday, so that's why you're doing it on Wednesday, but still. <laughs> yeah, yep. Um, I The last thing I'll say about this one is I, like, Champlin's performance in in maybe this dream is just is so good just vocally and like for anyone who hasn't seen Snow White in a while it's a very different style of singing than what you hear in the right. later Disney movies it's, it's a very di- like the the really light and and really wide vibrato really fast vibrato is something um that's indicative of very early Disney princess movies um and not at all 90s and forward i would say even probably just those first few ones um it's been a while since i I watched sleeping beauty so i don't know if it's in sleeping beauty as well but it's definitely i was really connecting to snow white it's definitely in sleeping beauty as far as i'm remembering at least it's very much more of a lineage from what you're describing um Mm -hmm. whether or not it's actually within that range only you can answer because i have no idea (laughs) um but it's it's definitely within like that lineage much more so than basically the songs that begin with like little mermaid and going forward within the disney canon um oh gosh we could just go on and on about that but we we won't but we won't (laughs) uh but yeah so it's just so wonderful to see a show with music and with songs uh original music even but even any like glee these other shows that has singers who can do such different styles as when she totally donald and champlin totally nailed her torch song yeah. uh and her big broadway like a uh, mama rose number last year and then this they're all three very different from each other and she just delivers uh so much it's terrific usually these shows don't cast singers and it's really irritating to me so it's lovely to see yet again that this one has at least uh with most of its most of its performers so yeah the range just really really was terrific um we should move on i'm gonna stop talking about music or else we'll keep going and that'll be a problem we'll run out of time um our last show this week in comedy is the good place uh someone like me as a member is the episode and i have one very important question for you noel how does Kristen bell still believably pull off high school it's like i don't know because she does I mean, part of it, I think, is very much like the wig and the braces. I think yeah. really... But the physicality, too. But the physicality of it, no, you're absolutely correct, is that she just found that, and mm-hmm. I don't know how, but like when they cut to it, it's just like, oh, guys, really? You're going to go that far back? And then by the end of it, I was just like, you sons of bitches, you could totally go further back. I could believe Kristen Bell is a middle schooler at this point, mm-hmm. and I would have no problems with that, because yes, no, she totally finds that high school physicality i mean it's all there like the costuming but like mm-hmm. it's in the makeup very, but, yeah. and the makeup but it's very much like she just she's in it somehow or another and i have no idea because it still feels very distinct from even the other two flashback eleanors that we get plus Mm-hmm. the current day dead Eleanor. Or even something like Veronica Mars. It's a very different right. high school feel than Veronica Mars yes. in high school. 
Yeah. Well, also, Veronica Mars didn't have braces. <laughs> yeah. But, but like, just the personality of it does yeah. feel distinct <laughs> than the several different types of high school Veronica we saw uh, from yeah, different time true. periods during that show. So, basically, Kristen Bell's really good, guys. God, and it's not like we didn't know that, but, I mean, but, we're, finding, we're finding new layers of goodness. Mm-hmm. Within Eleanor's badness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what did you think of the mid-season finale here? Well, first of all, it's bullshit that's a mid-season finale. They only have four episodes left. Just air them in BC. Just air them. Because um, they're done. We all know mm-hmm. they're done. Um, but no, um, I really enjoyed um, this episode. Again, I mean, I've been really enjoying this show throughout its entire run, as you're well aware. And um, so I really enjoyed how this episode um, allowed Trevor to be just even worse. Um, and Adam Scott just really leaning into being really horrible. And um, that we also like got to meet the Eleanor that was supposed to be in the good place. Um, <clears throat> and how just she's not traumatized by being in the bad place in any way, shape or form. Because this is a woman who is so good that being in the bad place is something that she can just kind of deal with and that she doesn't feel angry or resentful of the fact that they got swapped by accident because she was trying to save other Eleanor's life in the process. (laughs) Um, Just all of that is just really, really great. And like, just Kate, I hate to say this, but Mm -hmm. my, my id very much wants to do bad place karaoke. Yeah. Yeah, not that like, looks terrific. Not, not, it doesn't, I don't want to do Bad Place Karaoke, but my id kind of wants to do Bad Place Karaoke. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a, just <laughs> such a fun twist on it. And then there's snorting time and right. like, yeah, it's just such a fun counterpoint to the yogurt that tastes like the feeling of having finished your laundry or whatever it was. You uh, know? Having a freshly charged cell, a fully charged cell phone battery. Yeah. 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 Cause who wants to do laundry aside from me? And apparently you No, having <laughs> done the laundry. Right. So the laundry is done, but yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it, it was a lot of fun. It, like the idea that they like hangovers and that they're, you know, finding out that there actually is torture in the yep. bad place too. So it's not just an inconvenience. There is legitimately horrible things that are going to happen to her if she ends up in the bad place. Um, yeah, no, I thought it was a really strong mid-season finale. Uh, I agree, it shouldn't be. We should just watch the next four episodes. But if we can't, uh, they they certainly have me ready to. You know, like it's a good it's a good pause point. It is. No, I mean they have a very good cliffhanger with um, Tahani realizing that Jason is Jason and yeah. going into his butthole. And um, I will never get tired of saying that because it's such a terrible, terrible joke. So but it's terrible. really funny. It's not, <laughs> um, it's not funny. Oh, <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. But also just like all the Michael stuff I think is really great. If mm. I know how to deal with them. I'm just going to be more accommodating. <laughs> and the idea of, oh, don't, we don't want to trouble Sean with this. Right. And I mean, I'm so excited to find out who Sean's going to be played by. Um, they've already been like, well... It's going to be someone from my other shows. So start guessing now um, yeah. type of thing. And it's just like, but you already know. You've already cast it and done it. Mm-hmm. So just tell us. Um, <laughs> so I'm really excited about Sean. I'm really excited to see how Tahani and Jason deal with one another. Um, I, The only thing I want going forward also is I want more of good things. So I want more of bad Janet. And mm. I want an explanation for why you would have a bad Janet. <laughs> I'm well, no maybe <laughs> maybe just for if anybody asked for anything helpful, 
yeah, in the bad right. place. She's there to be terrible. Right. That, no, that's a good point. Um, I think one question I have for you, because a friend of mine and I were discussing this on Twitter, was that Trevor has all these, like, groupies, lieutenants mm-hmm. type of thing with him. Because they're, they're not obviously people who are being tortured. Mm-hmm. So there are other, like, bad place people. Mm-hmm. So, like, but Michael's just all by himself, basically. And, like, I I figured out a reading for it while I was mm-hmm. discussing it with my friend. But how do you feel about the fact that it's just Michael, but then Trevor has, like, a whole entourage of really annoying, really horrible people with him? Well, in The Good Place, um, they they leave their communities. They don't stay in them. So it right. made sense to me that he wouldn't have a bunch of entourage or groupies. And, he, of course, somebody, I mean, Michael, somebody like Michael doesn't need groupies or an entourage that wouldn't necessarily want them. And whereas of course, Trevor, uh, you know, Adam Scott's character would be the kind of jerk who you have to deal with him, but you also have to deal with his idiot friends that are just hangers on and just the worst. I it just, I think it really fits with the bad place. No, I like that reading as well. Like what I approached it as is like, not only isn't like Michael, a Michael's not even supposed to be there. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's just supposed to be, neighborhood's supposed to be self-sufficient type of thing. But, like, my other thing was, is, like, we kind of discussed, like, the banality of the bad place uh, last week. And, like, my thing was, is, like, one of the most, like, banal things within, like, fiction when it comes to, like, hellscapes sometimes is just the bureaucracy of it all. No, and, like, true. my idea was, like, I mean, of course he has, like, hanger-ons that have no function but are like some sort of cogs within the bad place like bureaucracy because then it becomes again these kind of very oppositional sort of oppositional sort of um systems of hands-off everyone's self-sufficient type of thing to you need an entire bureaucracy that nobody understands to do all the torturing type of thing which again kind of like made sense to me as how they're like constructing this world whether or not that's accurate or not it just felt like how that would work but i like your reading on it as well is that of course someone who's horrible would have a really horrible entourage as well <laughs> yeah yeah no I, I like that too the idea of the one being like go ask so-and-so and then you have to go ask and then go ask so-and-so you know like, right is uh, yeah if you got a day off from being tortured <laughs> yeah yes yep. that that would be your day is not being able to get something done because everyone just told you to go talk to someone else yeah no, that's good. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to the uh, wrap-up of the season next year. Um, another really strong freshman comedy this year. It's been another good year for them. But uh, what wins your week in comedy here, Noel? we got a, we got some contenders. We do have some contenders. Um, but I think I'll give it to, like, Alana as a whole type mm-hmm. of thing. Um, in part because we just didn't discuss it on a regular basis. And I feel like had we, like, discussed it, like, certainly with Ban and then probably with Gene Tor- Juneteenth, it probably would have won my weeks. Um, so I'll give it to Alana this week, just as kind of like an overall season achievement type of tip of the hat. Uh, what about you? Well, yeah, I watched four or five episodes of Atlanta this week, so I wouldn't necessarily give it to this finale, though I thought it was a really strong finale, but yeah. I would absolutely give it to other episodes of Atlanta that I watched this week. So, yeah, I'll also give it to Atlanta. Tip of the hat to Jane and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Good Place as well um so many good episodes this week but uh but yeah atlanta definitely um now we'll take a break and come back with our week in genre and drama
This week in genre and drama, Noel's going to talk a little bit about the new show uh, on Netflix, The Crown, uh, particularly the pilot Wolferton Splash and a little bit of Hyde Park's Corner, episode two. Then I'll talk a bit about Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, um, Horizons, and Lost and Found, which are the first two episodes. First episode was two week, was last week, and then this second episode was this past week. Then we'll both talk a little Arrow, Human Target, Legends of Tomorrow, Abominations. Such a fitting title. Um, before we move on to Elementary, Henley Penny, The Sky is Falling, Queen Sugar, Next to Nothing, and Rectify, Yoke. So uh, first up is The Crown, which I have not yet gotten to, but I hear I will love, if nothing else, for the costumes. What did you think of The Crown, and should I be checking it out? Um, I, I'm not sure how like strong of a recommendation I can give based on an episode and a half. Um, because, I mean... It's it's very still like, all right, because I mean, like the whole premise of the show is like we're going to do six seasons that spans a decade each season about Elizabeth II. So we're going to take our time with this guy's um, type of thing. So like the first episode is very much like in the vein of establishing that George is sick and that Churchill has been reelected to prime minister in 1947. I think 47 Late 40s, early 50s. I forget when Churchill started his um, second staunch, but I know that, like, George dies in 1952. Um, spoiler alert, sorry. Um, but how else um, type of thing. So um, what I can say, and indeed the costumes are very nice, but what I will say is that the first two episodes are very much about um, Jared Harris's um, uh, George. Um, and it's fantastic. Like, he's... Jared Harris is that's that's yeah, the right name. That's right? his name. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, because it sounded very wrong as soon as I said it. Um, but it's very much episodes about a that character would be also about that performance because they're both they're just fantastic. Like knocks it out of the park. No surprise. Like even me who just like watched the barest of Mad Men still got to see Jared Harris in Mad Men. He's phenomenal in Mad Men, but he's phenomenal in most anything. So he's very very good here as George. Um, one of my, the thing that I like most about the premiere anyway is that it's a, going back to this idea of being about George is that it's very much about George, but it's also very much about everyone getting psychologically and politically prepared for Elizabeth because George, George, everyone understands George is sick. Um, aside from his family, of course, because it's Britain in the late 1940s, early 1950s. You just don't talk about that sort of thing with your family. Um, so everyone kind of has to, Elizabeth is very much this wild card, even though she has had training in terms of helping out with the government during the war and even participating in some ways during the war, um, that she has this perspective, but nobody knows what that perspective is. And that causes anxiety, especially for Churchill um, in a lot of ways. And Churchill is played by John Lithgow, which I forgot he was even in this. And it's not the best thing because so much of what they're doing with Churchill is in clothing and in prosthetics. And it's very grounded in this kind of, again, this very idea of Churchill that we all have of growly, rude, unpleasant British LBJ basically type of thing. And they just kind of play that up maybe too much. And again, it's entirely possible that this is very accurate, but it feels much more like a caricature in a way nothing else in this feels like a caricature. Um, which I think says more about, again, how much they're maybe overplaying what they're doing with Churchill. Um, and everyone else is very underplaying a lot of stuff. Um, so 
I'm going to watch more because I'm really interested in seeing what happens once Claire Foy is put front and center as she was by far and away like one of my favorite things about Wolf Hall, um, which is a very, very, very long list of things that I love (laughs) about Wolf Hall. But I'm really excited to see what she does going forward because I loved her as Anne in Wolf Hall. So I'm really excited to see what she does as Elizabeth II. And um, I'm eager to see Matt Smith in something else because basically all I've seen him in is Doctor Who. Um, I don't think I've seen him in in literally anything else. So I'm, he's very understated. He's very good in these first couple of like episode and a half that I got to watch. And my only other big question when you get around to watching it is whether or not you think that that's actually Matt Smith's bum um, (laughs) that we get to see in the first two episodes because there are very prolonged shots of his ass or Stanton's ass because it's always from behind and there's no cut or any camera movement that says, no, this this is a stand-in and which makes me think it's a stand-in, but you can weigh in later. (laughs) (laughs) I will see, we'll see if I develop strong feelings about the use of a stand-in or not. Uh, for Matt Smith in The Crown. Uh, but I, I hope to have seen at least a couple of these by next week. So I will have my thoughts then. It's interesting. And, and I'm glad to hear um, Jared Harris uh, is in this because, of course, he's always terrific. And I, I like I knew Claire Foy was in it. I knew that Matt Smith was in it. But I didn't know that he, that Harris is in it. So that's that certainly has my interest peaked. Um, the next show we have here is Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. And, uh, of course, this is based on the, the novels by Douglas Adams. Uh, most famous, of course, for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, and also for some people, his work on Doctor Who uh, during the Tom Baker era. But um, this is—I um, was underwhelmed. Now I've read the book, the first book at least. I've read the Salmon of Doubt, which was the, like chapters, or whatever that were going to be a third Dirk Gently that ended up in the Hitchhiker's trilogy. But um, I don't know that I've read the second book in the series because I, I've definitely read the first book at least once and then forgotten that I had read it and read it again and not gone into it and then tried to read it again. Like, I've just never connected with the source material for this, so maybe that's part of my distance from this uh, show. I really, really enjoy the episodes of Doctor Who that are almost exactly the same as the Dirk Gently books, uh, at least the first one. But what I, this what this episode, what the show is about, well, there's the character of Dirk Gently, who's a detective, um, but who doesn't really so much follow clues as he's connected to, like, everything is connected, and coincidence leads him to things. And if he meets someone, then clearly they must be connected with this thing he's investigating. And there's a lot of uh, whimsy with that. But... Oh, and in regular guy, um, uh, Elijah Wood gets wrapped up in, in everything, and there's um, a bunch of craziness that's associated with it. There might be time travel or doppelgangers involved as well, and we'll see uh, when, you know, it looks like maybe a person and a dog's souls got switched at one point, um, so there's wackiness. But they also weren't happy to just leave it as a holistic detective. They also had to include... A, a other for Dirk Gently in this. So there's a holistic assassin who just, like, if she meets someone, clearly she's supposed to kill them, so she just kills... Like, you didn't have to give Dirk Gently an, a violent, gory other figure who's determined to go out there and kill Dirk Gently, but she doesn't know who that is. Um, it's like, there's no need for, for that. You don't need to be like, okay, well, but how can we make it also grisly? That's not, at least to my understanding of 
the books and the source material and the characters and anything Douglas Adams, that's not at all his tone or his vibe. There's an undercurrent of just unnecessary violence in this that really turned me off. There's a character who's been... um, like kidnapped, she's like a security guard protecting someone um, who we meet in the first two episodes, and she's uh, she's chained to a bed, uh, clearly being held against her will in like a some creepy like cement room, and uh, I don't think the show realizes how upsetting and disturbing that is for hopefully anyone, but certainly myself as a female viewer to see uh, when she spends like two episodes looking like she could get killed or raped at any moment. Um, and she's trying to break out. Uh, but she was, she's, uh, and she eventually, she eventually does, but it's like, where's, what is the tone of this supposed to be? What, what are you trying to say or do or connect? Cause it's too, it's not funny enough in its darker scenes to have it really connect, at least for me on that level. And then there's this back and forth tonal like whiplash that I'm getting from the really upsetting scenes to the really like again whimsical, ridiculous, goofy scenes. And they don't like they don't match the levels and the tones of that so that it it feels like a whole. It does not feel holistic, it doesn't feel like it's all of a piece. Um and so I watched the second one just because we, I wasn't able to talk. We weren't able to talk about it last week. I wasn't able to to quite finish the episode last week. I didn't want to give a, my thoughts until I'd finished everything. So I watched the second one this week so that I could hopefully have a better picture of it. But the the put upon like character who keeps getting dragged back into these shenanigans from Elijah Wood is too typical um, uh, of some of his other roles, like his persona, uh, the Elijah Wood kind of character that we've seen in some other things without having enough interesting other elements to him that that doesn't really work for me. I really love that that character's relationship with his sister and the stuff that they give them is really good. I actually really, really like that part of the show, but there's this just griminess and, um, completely unnecessary extra level of, of dark, disturbing subplots or it'll all connect by the end of the series. I'm sure um, that I don't think it needs, it seems to not, it seems to think it does, or it seems to think it's funny, or it seems to think is part of like a hijinky dynamic that I really don't see at all. Um, this is from Max Landis that might well, inform there's some... your answer to all of this. <laughs> yeah. I just don't understand why people, why someone thought this was a good take on, or a new take on this character. Um, yeah, I just, it, I don't understand how someone watches those scenes of this woman being chained to a bed and isn't really disturbed or who thinks that's funny and thinks they can leave that completely unresolved in the first episode. And that won't bother us. Uh, to, or, like, turn us off as viewers. So, I don't know. I really did not respond well to it. I didn't, I didn't like, shut it off in disgust after the first episode, but I'm certainly not going to be giving it any more of my time. Have you seen any talk about this? 
Uh, no, very little. Um, I know uh, like a, um, the extent of what it is is I was aware that it was happening, and I was actually going to watch it, and then uh, totally forgot about it um, twice. Um, and the other thing is, like, my best friend up here is very, very excited about this show, but she's waiting for it to hit Netflix, so she can just watch it all at once. But now I'm pretty sure she's going to hate it. Um, and I feel compelled to warn her in advance, mm-hmm. uh, about this. Um, and I was, again, I was interested in watching this despite the fact, and this is kind of a big admission that I'm about to tell you is that I don't really get Douglas Adams very much. Um, like I read Hitchhiker's Guide, all of it, and immediately went, oh, that was nice. Um, but I didn't laugh at all, um, type of thing. And so I'm always like super wary of getting in starting any sort of adaptation of his stuff or even reading other things that he's written um, because it's just like kind of verboten to admit that you don't particularly like Douglas Adams um, in a lot of circles, particularly like on the internet where (laughs) I live um, type of thing. So I was still interested in watching this, but now it's just like, no. And I had forgotten about like that Max Landis was involved, which had I known, I would have been immediately not interested because Landis is a hack um, in the politest sense of the word. Um, I can think of a few other words, but eh. we'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave it there. So I'm I'm very sorry that this was disappointing for you um, and mildly like off-putting and traumatizing in a number of ways. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm very sorry that you've watched two episodes of this. Then yeah. But please don't watch any more. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I'm not gonna. You don't... Creators, writers out there, you don't need to explain a character like Dirk Gently. He can just exist. Uh, They they give a backstory. They imply there are, like, these 30 kids who were part of some experiment all these years ago. And one of them is Dirk Gently, and one of them is this assassin. So, like... It's like the CIA or FBI knows about them and is, like, tracking Dirk Gent. Like, no. No, this is the kind of character who should just exist, you know? Yeah, that whole conspiracy angle theory is such a Landis thing. Yeah. I feel like that's in, like, three of his movies. It's like, you don't need to explain the Force. As soon as you start explaining the Force, it's it's bad. It does, <laughs> it's not, you're, you've missed the point of it. Like, you don't need to explain Zaphod Beeblebrox in Hitchhiker's Guide. He's just a, like sort of a force of nature, really big person. Like, and you can shade him and give him a history and a backstory, but you don't need to explain. Yeah. Anyways, um, those are my thoughts on Dirk Gently. I look forward to anyone else's thoughts if they watched these episodes. Uh, but let's move on for now to Arrow, Human Target. Now, first question, did you watch the TV show Human Target, of which I have fond memories? but it's been a while. And second of all, how did you like the incorporation of that character into this episode? A, yes, I have watched Human Target, and I also have fond memories of that show. It was delightfully charming, um, terrific cast, and I was immediately confused as to why Mark Valley was not in this episode, because <laughs> Mark Valley is amazing in anything, but mm. specifically, I was very upset that he was not in this episode, but I also understand why, because I think Mark Valley's much shorter than Stephen Amell is. Yeah, they needed a physical, like, kind of body <laughs> right. match a bit more, yeah. 
Yeah, so I understand that. Um, the guy who they get to play Christopher Chanson here, um, I don't even know his name, and I'm very sorry to that actor. Um, but it was kind of a non-starter type of like performance, and it felt very shoehorned in um, of, oh, DC will let us use this character. Eh, why not? Type of thing. Um, and I was also thoroughly confused as to who that assassin was supposed to be. Because... Um, it looked like the Arkham Knight, kind of, from a Batman video game that came out last year, but it wasn't the Arkham Knight, because the Arkham Knight looked like Batman, so it was just very confusing, and it also wasn't Sportsmaster, so I just didn't know who it was. <laughs> um, so that kind of stuff was fine. I I appreciated that they didn't explain how he survived and why they needed him to do it, as opposed to why Oliver just couldn't wear some squibs. <laughs> um... <laughs> type of thing so hand wave away don't worry about it guys um type of thing but i liked some of like the political stuff in it but then by the end i was just like oh we're gonna kill off chad coleman because we needed the mystery villain aspect back in the show um to which i went oh good because this always worked so well for you guys last year on the flash I hate mystery villains so much mm-hmm. now. Um, and, like, we can discuss who maybe it is, because you thought it was Malcolm. And it can't be Malcolm, because Malcolm's going to be busy with the Legion of Doom on Legends of Tomorrow. Um, so it has to be someone else. But it was it was also just, like, the show was doing very... making, like, really nice strides with diversifying its cast beyond... Well, we've got John Diggle um, <laughs> as our resident minority. And so it's just like, well, we've got Wild Dog, we've got Mr. Terrific, and Diggle's like still kind of circulating, and we've got Chad Coleman playing Tobias Church, and so we're really kind of filling out our diversity profile here, and then Diggle comes back into the fold, like, full time, and it's just like, whoa, guys, too many minorities, um, yeah, we're gonna kill him with a ninja star to the neck, and... Got that taken care of, which the irony of it being is that Chad Coleman also played Tyrese on The Walking Dead, which is notorious for killing off a black man and then just replacing him with another black man, like, two episodes later. Um, so, it wasn't, like, a particularly good episode by any stretch of the imagination, um, but... I'm also, and I think I may, may have mentioned this last week, I know I certainly mentioned it on social media, is that I'm kind of, like, okay with Arrow being terrible because I don't have to write 800 words about it anymore um, each week. So even though I really didn't particularly like how they wrapped up, like, the Tobias Church storyline, I was also straining for them to make Tobias Church a character without any superpowers and without a huge infrastructure within Star City being able to dodge all of their security camera and satellite access for no apparent reason other than the fact that they needed to to draw out this storyline um, in a way that just, this was a very unsatisfactory way to deal with that question and to deal with this very much more grounded criminal enterprise threat that the show wanted to get back to doing. And now we're getting to a super archer again. And I'm just like, oh, fuck, I don't care. So how did, how did you feel about uh, this episode? And did, were you also equally disappointed that Mark Valley did not show up? <laughs> I wasn't because I wouldn't have expected him to. Right. No, um, no. I didn't expect him to either. Yeah. But... 
But I did. I I was fun with the character. I thought those they they did the the twist or whatever pretty well. I thought that that was fun. And I I mean Felicity you, with the mask and you yes. have failed. This it was was just adorable. Um, so I thought that all worked well. Um, they incorporated him into the backstory, of course. So which they like we still don't we don't care uh, about the backstory and the flashbacks. But at least with the reporter, it looks like it yes. might actually affect things this year, which is right. better. And- it's only taken five years for someone in Star City to go, huh, I wonder if I should look into Oliver Queen's background. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, and, of course, Chuck Coleman had to die because he found out Oliver's secret identity. That's the other reason he bad had to guy, die. So yeah. that's how that works. Um, but, no, like you said, the, the, the show is tremendously benefited by us not having to talk about it every week or write about it every week. Um, so I can enjoy the parts of it that work and kind of ignore the parts that don't, uh, as long as it has enough energy and enough fun in a given episode. Uh, for me in this episode, I, I appreciate, first of all, that Thea has not, or has remained out of the hood, which I think is a good thing for that character and for the show good change of pace. But also I really appreciate in this episode that he cares about a vote and a vote matters. Is are we noticing a thread through this week's episode? I like episodes that stress that voting is important and that there is more to life. If you're going to be the mayor, if he's going to be the mayor, he can't just be a vigilante at night. There also is important important work to be done through the government, and it's not just some thing he can waltz into and out of without there being consequences. So I liked that both Oliver and Thea were stressing, yeah, but this matters too. This is this can have huge impact. Yes, though. Also remember that Oliver didn't actually do any of that this week. Yeah, Christopher Chance. <laughs> yes, that is that is true. We're not supposed to think about that too much. However, he also though he called ahead to set up the appointment. Though. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I think we can in- anticipate that that is, and, and the fact that that was important to him to have that happen when this other stuff was going on. When when Felicity is is the one saying like that doesn't matter. It's important for. a for Oliver, if he's going to be the mayor, and I think it's good for the show to say that as well. I'm like, no, there are other things that matter. If he's, if we're going to have him be the mayor, he actually has to be the mayor sometimes, at least. So I like that element of it. I certainly like this episode more than Legends of Tomorrow, Abominations, and I gotta say, I'm very surprised there has not been more negative response to this episode. From from what I can see, the reviews have all been at least middling to positive. Most of the reviews I saw were positive. Um, I will give a shout out to Carissa Pavlika at TV Fanatic, um, who mentions in her review that Henry Scott, the person who we see get killed, who has who's the Union soldier, he was a real dude. Uh, he was a real guy, and he was a founding member of the Niagara Movement, which led to the formation of the NAACP. And uh, Booker T. Washington said about him, quote, no colored man has ever organized and agitated for freedom in the land so persistently for so long a period. So if you're going to use a historic, an actual guy, an actual, like, significant person in that time period civil rights movement, you're just going to just kill him and then say, oh, it doesn't matter. We can just have do one mission. And then that's the only thing that he did in his entire, like, why did they use, like, if you're going to use the real historical figure, actually talk about the real, like, things that this person did. Don't just boil him down to one mission. So that's frustrating. And also give a shout out to Andy, uh, uh, Back over at Heroic Hollywood, who talked about in his review how Jax deserves better to to than to only get storylines when they need to talk about racism. He should be a character, not solely, to, you know, like they go, well, we're going to do racism this week. Oh, we better include Jax. 
but any other week uh he's doing something he's mechanicking he like the only time he seems to get episodes uh where they we actually look at him in a significant way is when he's interacting with racism in the past at least in this season and much of last season as well and that's really frustrating and problematic for me though I just like I hated the way that this episode dealt with its slavery uh third of the episode um it was really really frustrating for me uh because it was so shallow and so stereotypical and so um just it was so inauthentic it didn't feel real at all it felt like a paint by numbers color storybook of of racism and there was didn't seem to be any depth or thought um in the writing it, like, it's a good idea it's good that they're interacting with this stuff i think it's very good to talk about history as something that it will be shaped by your experience if you're traveling in time it's going to be shaped by your experience but the execution of it the writing was really bad and for me and the use of music i was almost offended by um i reacted really strongly i've been ranting for a while here what did you think of this one um so before we before i pivot to agreeing with you um the other two-thirds of the episode were fine um I to don't fun like... fine to fun yeah yeah i'm not a big fan of fast-moving zombies but they worked okay here um i liked stein's just visceral irrational response to zombies um because it allows victor garber to do comedy and i'm always here for that because he's a very funny actor that you just you sometimes forget very quickly and he's very very funny in this episode um that all being said yeah no it was bad it was bad um a lot of this like also reminded me of like how timeless is handling the fact that they have one black guy who helps out um and so much of his response to history is very much like well i can't make eye contact with anyone because we're in 1940s new york so i'm just gonna look like this and i'm look away type of thing or i can't go to germany because i'm a black guy in germany in the world war Two. not the best place for me to be maybe and so, I mean, they're kind of approaching it, but they're, like, winking and nodding type of thing um, in the, oh, well, we're aware of it. We're going to kind of poke fun at it, and we're going to kind of maybe deal with it a little bit, but not really deal with it. Um, because, again, like, in the pilot of Timeless, it's very much like, well, no, you can't change any of this because it might change history. Well, how bad would that have been type of thing? And that's very much applied to here is, well, why can't we change history for the betterment <laughs> type of thing? Uh, but no butterfly effect. It could change things for the bad too. She's like, Oh great. Thanks guys. But yeah, no, it's just, it's very unnuanced. It's very unshaded. Um, it's again, very much driven by the fact that when they're going to go to the 1950s, Oregon, that Jax gets to deal with racism. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's not good at all, um, for Jax as a character, um, because, like, the one time that they've tried to do something else with Jax was with his dad, and that wasn't executed particularly well either. Anytime they try to give Jax, like, character stuff, it just tends not to go very well, I think, and the other problem is that he's there, aside from Amaya, who's joined, he's the only minority on the show now. <laughs> And thus, they both get shoved into this storyline that just is, again, like you said, isn't good, has really poorly, has a not 
well-used spiritual moment within the slave quarters, which, not great, but okay, you're checking off slave narrative checklist, but then you use it at the end of the episode, and it's the worst possible thing to use it at the end of the episode, and it's just like, why did you do that? And I think my biggest issue is that they just decided to do... They wanted to do a Civil War narrative, and you can't do a Civil War narrative without dealing with slavery and race, racial tensions. But then, if you're going to do a Civil... And you're going to address it, then you basically have to devote your entire episode to that. And not do... Ah, Confederate zombies! Ah! Type of thing. Because then it's tonal whiplash between we're going to maybe try to say something about slavery in a way that is important to our characters but also guys look at all the crazy crazy zombies we've got and it's just it's not good um like you can do an adventure thing as you alluded to like in our last segment with uh slavery with the deep south with underground so well proves but if you're not going to do if you're basically not going to do underground at this point, then don't do this. Well, it's if you want to have your characters be experience something like this, that should change them. Right. Being faced with that reality, especially for a character who is a, a black man in America. Like that's his background. That's the way he grew up. I mean, really, any of those characters having to go and actually see in first person slavery and the realities of the foundation of America, that country, that should really affect them. Jax's experience here should, and and Namara too, that that should shape them. But that's not going to happen. They're not going to change from this experience. And you certainly are not going to be able to go down the line and do slave narrative bingo the way that this this episode really wants to in seven minutes. I'm sorry, no, it's 14, 14, oh, 14, like a third, a third of an episode, right? It's roughly a third. So between 10 and 15 minutes, you're, you're not going to be able to do that. So what we get is we get um, we get Jax underestimating the situation immediately being for first of all being an idiot for thinking he can just like stand around in this room when he's supposed to be infiltrating sneakily and he's just like standing in the middle of all the white plantation owner guests like that's very stupid anyways so he all of a sudden he's an idiot um but then he gets captured and he gets chained up and we go then all of a sudden everybody who doesn't know this guy who's theoretically making their lives worse you don't you know like who is this guy to um, having uh, them all open up to him and and talk about their struggles and and it's like within the span of one scene we've gone from who are you why are you an idiot there's you're you're ta- you're talking about how you're gonna escape and everything's gonna be better we don't believe you you're full of shit okay now we do and let's all sing uh, a spiritual together about how we we we're gonna be strong under uh, the duress of slavery it's like. It's insulting. It's so not believable that any person would act, any of these people that we see that are, that are the slave characters in this, any would act that way, would like talk to him at all. That when, it, it just feels like, I don't know, it was really very frustrating and, and, and almost upsetting to me when they started going into the, the spiritual, the song, because 
the, there's such power in that, um, in that music and in that history and what it meant to so many people and still means to people that to try to cash in on that and in such an unearned way was, was really frustrating. And then at the end of the episode with, when Jax is talking about the, the strength and the resiliency of the, of the people he met and of, and slaves and former slaves. And then this buddy goes, you know what? You're like them too. You're just as strong as those people. It's like, you're seriously going to cash in on this again. You're still going to, try to take the weight and the meaning and the power and the emotional significance of this music and, and steal, try to just through uh relation, steal the, some power and meaning and significance for your show in a completely unearned way. Again, like this is another example of the way that being a musician and having a, such a strong connection with types of music can't help but really shape the way that I view episodes like this it did gave so much more power to an episode like the um the children centered episode of underground for me and this it just gave me such a visceral no <laughs> such a visceral this is not okay um yeah I, I was just glad i didn't i wasn't writing about it because i'm also very aware that you know i'm a white girl from the suburbs like i should not be the person talking about what is the right or wrong depiction of uh, of, of a black character experiencing like through time travel slavery that's I don't really get to have an opinion on that on the scale of things um, but I, I just I it really upset me um, and the more I think about it the more I talk about it the more frustrated I get well I think one of the things to keep in mind is that there's a way to represent this kind of an experience, which has been done through other programs. Mm -hmm. So again, I mean, we mentioned underground. I mean, there's other ways to explore this kind of meaning, which is like why I said, like, if you're going to do this, this basically needs to be your episode. There yeah. doesn't need to be any zombies in it um, because then you can really dedicate the time and the necessary time and space to it. Um, Without being able to do that, then it's not even a good representation of this kind of a narrative, which is something that you can and I can evaluate um, based on other types of ways that it's been done before. Um, so <coughs> I think that's the best way to kind of approach this is that this is this is how we should be thinking about this. And as a show, they should have been thinking about this. Cause I mean, no one said, oh, you guys need to do a civil war episode. Um, you, you, no one said that you guys actively chose to do a civil war episode. So there needs to be a degree of accountability to how you tell that story. And there's very little accountability to how that this story is represented. And that's deeply, deeply frustrating. And I mean, some of this is grounded in, like, arguably grounded in, like, Jax's own ignorance of assuming that he's invisible, where, yeah, you're invisible to a very limited extent and into a very specific way. But going through the houses, he was, no, you're not invisible in that case. You're very out of place in that case because there's a hierarchy that clearly the character wasn't aware of. But that becomes a larger question of, well, Jax, how much of... How much of history are you aware of, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and it just it becomes a very thorny thorny way of telling the story that raises all sorts of bad issues 
that the show itself is not necessarily equipped to answer and or is interested in answering and that's that's not good for the show when they want to also follow this up with we're going to go to the 80s and you're going to enjoy Damien Dark dressed in Miami Miami Vice fatigues. Yeah. Well, and again, show how Jax is shaped by this experience. Yeah. Show how Amaya, Amaya is shaped by this experience. Have them discuss and, it and have different reactions and learn different things and have... They're coming from different... They're from very different time periods themselves. Right. And that's never a factor. It's not a huge factor for Amaya when she's, like, dealing with this. And she's much closer to this than Jax is, mm-hmm. um, like, from a chronology standpoint. And it's just like... But her her experiences I felt felt like significantly downplayed, and maybe I just missed the line of dialogue no. that she had with it. No, it is. No. Yeah, it, it, like if she, we don't have any sense of her experience before this because we know that her her mother right was from an African community. Yes, that that family that lineage, the yeah. cave lineage, comes from a yeah. very specific tribe in Africa. Well, and we, and we, she talked specifically about her mother, but I don't think that she talked about... Do we know, did she grow up in Africa, or did she grow up in the States? Um, for her character, for Maya, I can't answer that question. If this was still Maria, I could very much answer that yeah. question. The question is, yes, she grew up in the States, but yeah. I don't know for Maya. Yeah, so, like, did she, like, go to the States and join the Justice Society of America? Like... After growing up in the States, and then her family went back to Africa so that two generations later she could, you know, like... Yeah. It's... And we should know, if you're going to do a narrative uh, about slavery and watching characters interact with that, we should know that. Because they should know that. Um, Or, like, the the other characters should be... uh, Anyways, we should move on. I'm just getting more irritated at this episode. Uh, And... I, again, I just reiterate, I, I'm very surprised to have seen so many like, oh, it was fun, lighthearted, with no, no, nobody seemed to think it was problematic, or very few people who reviewed it seemed to think it was problematic, and that was puzzling to me. Um, let's cleanse the palette a little bit here with elementary, Henny Penny, the sky is falling. Um, I say cleanse the palette, because I, this was fine, this episode was fine, but I think what, I, the reason I want to talk about elementary, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, Noel, is that I think I have to just accept that elementary is not going to get back to where it was character-wise in season three. I keep hoping that they're going to do something as affecting and as interesting, as nuanced as the the arc they gave Sherlock through season three. But it's season five now, and they didn't do anything approaching that in season four. And so far, four episodes in, it doesn't look like they're doing anything interesting outside of just a fun episode of the week here in season five. So... I think I just need to step back, right? Emotionally? Yeah, I think you. I stepped back. I took like two or three steps back last season um, because the uh, the dad stuff just wasn't clicking for me in any way, shape, or form, despite John Noble's best efforts. Um, so I was just, I was very prepared for a clean slate in terms of season five, but I was also just like, they're not going to be able to do that again because that was a very singular type of story that they can tell without overdoing it, basically. So if we do another relapse threatened type of thing, how do we tell that story in a way that is just as powerful? And I'm I'm not a creative enough person to say, aha, I've got exactly how you can do that. But 
I don't know that there's a way for them to do that. So they have to find some sort of other character-driven story. But the fact of the matter is, is that Sherlock's whole personal interiority is his relationship with Joan, his relationship with his family, which we've, we've burnt both of those bridges. Mm -hmm. Um, and then his relationship with Irene slash, um, Moriarty, Jamie. And, um, we can't deal with that anymore because Natalie Dormer's too famous. Um, so. Well, and that's why I keep hoping that, kept hoping that they would do something interesting with Joan. Cause there's so much they could do with Joan yes. of near equal weight and they just aren't. Right. And so instead we get them rehashing this idea of how important his relationship and the work is, how important the work is that they do, but it's more important because he does it with Joan. But we've covered that ground even within an episode multiple times at this point. Um, even like in season two, when Mycroft was like circling around, like this was a big part of what was going on with Sherlock's response to a lot of this was, I want you to stay type of thing. And I want you to stay because you make this work much more important. And so we get that reiterated within this episode. But again, we've had this reiterated before. And I, I, don't, I don't necessarily need it reiterated again. But I think that a lot of it is also grounded in at least the reiteration of this. But also Joan's desire for recognition is grounded in what's been started in the premiere of Joan wanting something else or needing something else. And being recognized is a way of having that something else in a certain way. Um, but that connection isn't drawn directly between those two impulses within this episode, and which is kind of frustrating. But then I also remember that season three plays a very subtle game with Sherlock's relapse to the point where you didn't exactly realize what they were doing until the finale. And then you see it all fall into place in hindsight, um, which is at least was my experience with season three was realizing what they had done very subtly through having a procedural spine and then just little elements sprinkled out. So that could be where this is going, but it's, too soon to tell and i'm also not quite sure how like joan's former patient turn project um factors into that yeah yeah i think yeah i mean it's a good point about how season three uh part of what made it so satisfying is that you didn't necessarily see exactly what they were doing and then when it did come together it made so much sense that that's what made it that that was how well they did it it was that you you the pieces were all there and if you put it together you could enjoy it the first time through that uh, that arc as well but even if you didn't then in retrospect it all made sense so maybe you're right maybe they are doing something like that and i should be a little more patient with them but i think i also just need to stop expecting that from the show because it doesn't seem like that's what the show's interested in and if if not then i should just in, be able to enjoy it on a different level of just it's a fun show yeah, and I mean, you should you should relish as much as I do the fact that this show apparently hates Neil deGrasse Tyson, and <laughs> just the sheer enjoyment of meeting another one of Sherlock's regulars 
in that this is an old college friend of his or school, like childhood school friend of his that he absolutely loathes and does not respond to the fact that science needs to be explained with jazz hands. Um, (laughs) And just that whole thing. But I mean, I'm also one of those people when they do a rip from the headlines type stuff of near earth, near earth object collision type of science, which is something I, through my day job, kind of like, deal do stories about every couple of months and then just this whole asteroid mining thing so the conflation of these things was really really like hit buttons for me really hard because this is something i'm passingly familiar with through news coverage so i really enjoyed how this particular case unwound in ways that made complete sense based on my understanding of these topics through the news. But I also just enjoyed them making fun of Neil deGrasse Tyson, who has become overexposed and kind of obnoxious on Twitter. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. I will say this as ever, uh, Joan's, uh, costume, her wardrobe is so good. And their title game has been on point all season. Excellent titles, uh, for all of these episodes. Well, that, uh, that I mean, do you have any other thoughts on Elementary? Or should we move on to Queen Sugar? Uh, yeah. Next to nothing. And you were right, the um, the Storm episode last week was, was really strong. Uh, well, I, I liked it more than you did, I think. But, like, it really yeah. brought things to a boil in a nice way. And we saw how some of that played out this week. Um, I still don't... I still don't care that much about um, Charlie's love life, which they Remy. really want us to be invested in her dynamic with Remy. Um, but the, I really enjoyed the stuff we were getting with with, with Vi, with with um, Charlie and, and Nova. Um, yeah, I, I think there was a lot of really really strong stuff here. What did, what did you think about about next to nothing? I was really glad that it just very much dealt with like the fallout of having such a very focused episode last week. So it was mm-hmm. just like, even if to a lesser degree, like Ralph Angel and Blue are very much in the back seat of how this episode, but that's a much longer game for the show to play. And um, to, uh, to the extent that that story basically got kind of transferred to Violet and how she was working through Hollywood and also working through just basically in a number of ways having to be the family matriarch and the burdens that that puts on her on across the board and how Nova kind of helps her deal with that I think is really really important and I really liked their scene even though I also immediately went, oh, the power coming back on just as they're having this epiphany is a little heavy-handed. Guys, <laughs> just just scale that back a little bit. You didn't need the power coming back on. <laughs> but I liked Nova's advice of, you're in a prime opportunity to focus on you right now. And you need to take that opportunity because even though a number of other things are happening, they're all kind of in order to a lesser extent that you can focus on you and more importantly, you need to focus on you. You can't be roaring about Blue and Ralph Angel as much as you have been because now they're kind of steady-ish. And everything is ish right now. And this is a good time for you to be like, take the ish in you and make it less ish. And I'm talking like I'm a character (laughs) in Buffy right now. But um, I think that that was like my big takeaway from that episode, apart from that really kind of just amazing scene of 
Charlie and Ralph Angel and Blue's teacher, who I had forgotten existed, um, <laughs> because she just kind of disappeared from the narrative, um, talking to the other two workers about the workers that died during the storm and just how really gut-wrenching that that whole sequence was and how that how that sequence played out with like without any interruptions from other narratives or without like commercials or even like the queen sugar hashtag the gimme sugar hashtag within the confines of the episode was just like this is this is our big key emotional moment that we need you to focus on audience so please focus on it and i really appreciated how that was played um and how that was written I like that the actor, the Spanish-speaking characters were not given subtitles because, the, A, there was a translator there, but B, it would have just lessened, I think, that moment from the fact that we're approaching it from Charlie and Ralph Angel's perspective and they and Nova's perspective in that they either have very broken Spanish or no Spanish at all. And so I think that that was a really significant choice to make. Um, so I enjoyed a lot of this. I'm intrigued to see like what happens with a number of other facets, but mostly I'm just, I want Violet to be okay. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And and those are the two key scenes for me as well. I really like that scene with Nova and Violet. Um, and and then, of course, the, the fallout. I, I, when, when we see... The, the previously on and it's like this the thing of not letting the, the workers leave it's like oh no it's gonna be I liked that it was not as direct as like a right. one for one but still you know like when Char I like that they were letting Charlie be wrong and in this case fatally wrong because um, we don't know what happened but we know it's that her what she did certainly didn't help and that showing of you know, that's part of why she is an effective business person, because she will push and demand for what she wants or needs, but also there are consequences to that sometimes, and she can be wrong, and she can be very self-centered uh, and, and and not take advice that she should take. Um, I liked that they the stuff we got with Charlie and Nova about that, I thought that scene, especially coming out after the tension in the previous episode, uh, was Again, this idea of, of when they pull together versus when there's conflict amongst the siblings. It felt very organic. And, um, yeah, I look, I mean, I, I look forward to what we have coming. I, the idea, I, it was interesting for me viewing uh, the last week's episode, the, the idea of um, Charlie not condoning um, Nova's lifestyle. It never occurred to me that she'd make the connection to her sexuality. But, of course, of course she would think that's what Charlie meant. The, you know, given the the way that our society treats people who are alternative lifestyle, air quotes, meaning don't fit into the the whatever the norm of the day is, um, but but because of the way the show has it has shown these characters and and their connections with each other, it just never occurred to me the way it wouldn't occur to Charlie, because that's not her experience. That's not Charlie's experience day to day, so of course she knows that's not what she meant. But I, I don't know. I just I'm I'm rambling, but I, I really liked that element of their. It's like no, it's not about that. It's about the fact that you're sleeping with a married man and you sell drugs and this other stuff is like I I, and I I've liked the 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 complicated dynamics I guess between those two and the ways in which they have blind spots for each other and the ways in which they don't and that those don't always line up they don't always realize what each other's blind spots are um i i continue to really enjoy the the characters on the show and 
it, it's not usually um, week to week. It's not hitting me as strongly as it did at the beginning of the season, but it's still, I think, consistently really strong. Yeah, I agree with uh, hitting, but I mean, a lot of this is just narrative expansion. Like, mm-hmm. the show's getting bigger in terms of the story world and in terms of its plot world, basically, than it was, like, at the beginning. Like, it's been a very steady, like, build of stuff that the characters have to deal with, and the, their world progressive. Their world is getting progressively bigger from, oh, this is this nice handy guy from the diner, to this is a romantic option for me, to my son is, like, struggling to figure out what school is, to, oh, he's made a nice lady friend already who likes to shoot guns, mm-hmm. and that kind of a thing. And so there's a steady escalation of narrative that has to happen. Um, that I'm, that I think is just natural to, you can still have really good moments within the show. Just the entire episode isn't necessarily moments now, Mm -hmm. I think. Whereas like the first couple episodes are basically just a chain of just really great moments that tell a complete story. They're very short story driven. Whereas now we're progressing. Oh God, I'm using novelistic language. Oh, I'm the worst. (laughs) Oh, I'm just, oh, I'm going to stop talking because I was just about to say, well, now we're getting into kind of a novel length type thing. And no, it's just yeah. we've moved out of a pilot sequence to we're moving fuller into the season and setting up stuff for a second season. And that's where we are. But oh, God, I'm so gross. Oh, okay. and everything I hate. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on to our last show of the week. And that's Rectify Yoke, um, which talking about, you know, shows that can be a series of moments. I mean, that's absolutely some of the, the approach rectify has taken, um, over its run. Uh, what did you think about this? Last week was all Daniel. This week is no Daniel. So what did you think about the rest of, uh, of the, the, the clan and Polly? Um, I really liked this episode. Um, I didn't like it as much as, uh, last week's episode. Um, mm-hmm. in part because like last week's episode is just so, was just very emotionally driven. And this episode for me is, still emotionally driven for certain characters and like um the date night between teddy and tawny almost like kind of broke me just almost like broke me came really really close um i had kind of forgotten like how that relationship worked on me because it just kind of kept moving in and out for me like memory wise so having like their very awkward date night um came like barreling back of how very complicated and messy and prickly their relationship is now um that just all came rushing back so i was just like oh no but then it was also the combination of going oh but now you're on lethal weapon (laughs) (laughs) um so but the date night sequence was really really good um but i also enjoyed like um hang on um janet like cleaning the fridge and trying to find something to do and just the extent that she was cleaning the fridge by putting everything in the tub is as someone who routinely cleans his fridge and has cleaned a fridge like that goes why didn't you just clean it in the sink (laughs) and just reshelve things as you went because you have to clear everything out and then you can wash the containers and then you can put everything the the I, I, that would, you know, the, it, her cleaning method made sense to me as someone who has also cleaned a fridge like that. <laughs> right. But the other thing is, is like, it needs to take as long as possible because I don't want to think. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where that is. And so I really appreciated that. Um, I, enjoy, but mostly I just enjoyed how this episode was very much a check-in 
on where these people are now. So it's just like Amantha's running the thrifty dollar store and is a manager. So follow up from her going through that training. Um, but also just, I loved the visuals and of her being sitting in that decrepit satellite dish quoting Dr. Strangelove to herself for reasons that I'm not entirely clear on. And I was hoping that you would maybe elucidate what that was, but it also just made me want to watch Dr. Strangelove, which is the worst possible movie for me to want to watch right now. (laughs) Yeah, no, wait till after the election for that Um, one. So, no, I just enjoyed how this was like a series of like vignettes, and then it all came together for everyone over flapjacks. Mm-hmm. And that it was a family breakfast that, but a family breakfast that didn't solve everything. And I was also thankful for the reminder of the fact that Amantha and Teddy are on like decent terms with one another and can joke around with one another, and that they're in a place where like Teddy can ask, "Can I just rent your apartment <laughs> <laughs> so I can get away from my dad, but also so I have a place to maybe take Tawny at some point in the future should that happen." Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you feel about Yoke and its series of stories? I thought it was, again, a terrific. It's not a surprise that I'm super in the bag for Rectify. Uh, but for me, the scenes that I really connected with were a lot of the Teddy scenes, Teddy Jr. scenes. So, like, like the stuff we got, like, the scene with, the scenes we got with Teddy Jr. and Janet were just, again, that this is a show that uses silence so effectively, so full while being so empty like when when he's sitting like the scene we get first with big ted and teddy um drinking the coffee in in the the kitchen and then later when teddy goes over to the window it's just like such a mirror of his father um and and that having that space still with janet and and teddy jr and like that she wants to repair but not enough and he really wants her to repair, but he can't make her repair it. And she's still so caught up on uh, Daniel. Daniel. And, uh, yeah, it just was really, really, really great. I liked, I, I also really uh, enjoyed the Teddy Jr. and um, Amantha scene we got later. I thought that was really fun. Um, and just he, he needs to get out of the house. But also he can tell that, like, things aren't good necessarily with him and Janet. And he can't help. But Amantha can help. And she wants Amantha there. She doesn't not want Teddy there, but she wants right. Amantha there. Um, and and so I thought that, you know, worked well. Uh, the, the dynamic made sense, and he also, you know, needed the space, so that I think makes sense. But the, the lunch scene, the date was, was really great with, with Amantha and Ted, not with, um, with Tanya and Teddy. Um, and the other thing I have is with this episode is like, oh, and also Jason Cameron's amazing, and Big Ted is a saint, He's a saint, he is, because, um, like, he's having a, a rough go of it with Janet. Um, but um, so many of these scenes were stressful and creepy throughout this episode. Like, like this, the Teddy Jr. Janet scene, the music made that scene just, like, really uncomfortable and really creepy. Like, if you scored that scene differently, it could have been incredibly warm and supportive feeling. Um just because, again, there's so much we have to infer into their performances, and I think the performances are really strong, but the scoring of that just, like, just tips the scene over into a really uncomfortable space. Are you um, talking, like, when she's baking the cake? Yeah, when, when, he, when he, he wants to help, and right. she won't let him, but, and... But that was such a weird scene, because they take Satie, 
for that scoring. And it's really weird. Right? It's. It, I was just like, where did this come from? You guys don't use pre, pre-composed music like this. They don't use classical very much. Right. And so I didn't know where that came from. And it was very... It just... It didn't make it creepy. It just made me immediately go, why are you guys using a satire composition here for no clear reason? Again, for me, super creepy. Also, we got Amantha walking along the road by herself after having an accident. Like, Because whenever you see someone driving, you're like, okay, well, when are they going to screw up and get hit? But she didn't screw up and yet still the car accident. And then she's walking. Like, for me, there were just so many scenes where you're like, is Janet going to snap? Is Teddy going to snap? Is uh, something terrible going to happen to Amantha? Like, it was a stressful episode. <laughs> well, I, I, I think I, 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 was, I was waiting for, like, Janet to snap. At some points, but I was also just aware of the fact that Janet was doing things that Janet needed to do to survive. And I think that her snapping was announcing that she needed to go to Nashville. Um, So it was a different kind of snap because I don't think Janet, Janet is self-aware enough to know that everyone else around her is not her problem right now. Like, the fact that Daniel's not talking to her is Janet's problem right now. And she's self-aware to know that. And that I think that there's enough sense of who everyone else is that this is not their fault. That she's not going to blame them for this. And so I wasn't waiting for her to snap at anyone else. But I was waiting for her to be like, I need to go to Nashville. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Any thoughts on Jared? No, um, I felt kind of bad for him as soon as that snow, that snowstorm. God, no, he's in Atlanta and he's, he's in Atlanta. He's in Southern Georgia. There's no snowstorms in Southern Georgia. Um, that as soon as that rainstorm started, it was just like, oh, you poor guy. But it's, he's, his stuff is like, he's so closed off from everyone else that he's also just like closed off from the audience at this point. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Um, because he's, he, whatever he's dealing with is something that we've even the show has never like fully been able to touch on in a way it's touched on a little bit and in the sense that he's tried to connect with daniel in a number of ways and that daniel has always been like this spectral figure for him basically but now he's gone again and he doesn't know what to do with that he doesn't know how to deal with himself but the show's also never fully engaged like his life outside of his family in a way that was ever satisfactory beyond season one. Mm-hmm. And at least to my best of my recollection, um, cause the big stories I remember for him dealt with his school very briefly in season one. And then we just never went back to any of that. Um, so I don't know what to make of him. And, but I like this idea of this is not a phase. I'm going to keep doing this. Um, and I need to work out whatever I need to work out, but I don't know how to read it as an audience member, but I'm also okay with that because of what this show is. Yeah. I like that they're giving him things to do and that they're, they're, they don't feel like they're, oh yeah, we should also do something with him. He's all, should also be there. They don't feel like they're forgetting him right. or just like having him conveniently off screen the way that they have done in the past at times. So uh, I look forward to hopefully that going somewhere um, or, or just having, you know, a little bit more time with him and, and having him figure out as the rest of the family tries to figure out their new, their new dynamic and their new normal. Yeah. Um, but anyways, well, I continue to, to really enjoy rectify. Yeah. To bring all of this kind of full circle, then um, you mentioned how your family, like 
responds re- your brother was responding to Superstore. Yeah. Um like have you gotten your family to watch like Rectify at all? Okay. Oh, no. Because I recommended it to my mom last weekend. Um, mm-hmm. I was just like, she needs stuff to watch because she doesn't have anything. She watches significantly less TV than either either of us do mm-hmm. because she's a sane person. Um, <laughs> but she also just basically doesn't have anything to watch on the weekend. So I was just like, knowing her sense of like what kind of stories that she likes and everything, I was just like, you should watch Rectify. I think a lot of this is going to appeal to you. And so she watched. she's watched two episodes um and i asked her about it last night right before i watched yoke and i was just like so how what do you think and she's like i really like that guy playing daniel i don't know him from anything so i have like no sense of how he behaves and like i'm just zeroed in on his eyes and everything that he's doing and i'm just like great that's exactly what you should be doing with this show because young's incredible and then she's just like it's really slow though like it's so slow Noel I don't understand <laughs> why it's so slow and I just went yeah um that's not gonna change so maybe like an episode a day mm-hmm. on the weekend just do like an episode a week because doing like back to back episodes is not necessarily the best way as someone who basically watched all of season one across a weekend not the best way to experience the show for a number of reasons but the real capper, and we're currently not speaking, is I find Amantha really grating. Mm. And I just went, oh, oh, Mom, we can't talk anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, uh, but season one, Amantha, you know, is, she's, she's like, strident. She's very agree. strident. But yeah. my mom used the phrase grating, and I just went, that's not the right adjective, Mom. We're, we're done. You're we're wrong. done here. <laughs> she also really likes um, Daniel's lawyer, whose name I cannot remember. Um, mm mm-hmm. Jonathan? Yeah, that sounds Jonathan? right. Yeah, yeah, it sounds right to me too. She really likes Jonathan. Um, but I don't know if she's gonna keep watching it. But I thought about that when you were mentioning Superstore was I got tried to get my mom to watch Rectify, and that's been like a semi missed effort. <laughs> <laughs> well, please keep us posted because I am intrigued to to find yeah. out how, how she responds to the rest of the show. I, yeah, no, I definitely like I tried I've tried, it's just no. That my I they don't listen to me anymore because I'm not good at necessarily pairing the right show with the right person aside from like certain like Steven Universe or like you know like a couple ones like that where I could go like no no particularly you will be like I mostly just tell people to watch good shows and yeah that's not the best way to do that sometimes it doesn't work it doesn't necessarily work like like, these are all a bunch of really good shows um I can't necessarily tell you like like unless they have a particular in like yeah. uh you know like we were talking to Nicole uh about how she will love Steven Universe and she I think she loves it now yeah. uh but but most of the time um yeah most of the time I I have a hard time gauging cuz I cuz we like so many different things and sure. I can ap- I can appreciate a a dumb action comedy and a really slow intense internal drama like rectify um and i don't always pick up on which things will like connect with which people so mm-hmm. like i recommended i think it was isn't an ed- an education right is that movie about um uh the the like the young girl in england to like good Samaria yeah. and to my parents because it was really good and they hated it because their parents, who have had young daughters, and it really got really upset about how she was being treated in, in the movie. I was like, oh, 
Oh yeah, oops. Oops. I don't always think of context. Oh my bad. So they just don't listen to me most of the time anymore. So I've burned those those oh well. Oh well. Every now and yeah. again I like nail it and then I get some credit and then I promptly lose the credit over the next couple recommendations. So <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I mean my trick, and maybe you can try this next time, is I never ask when people ask, when people like when I tell people like I have a television podcast where I do freelance television criticism. They're just like, oh, what shows do you like? And do you have any recommendations? And I immediately go, tell me what you don't like. <laughs> and I'm much better able to weed out what you will like based on what you don't like. I Clearly, that's what I need to try. I, yeah. That sounds like a good jumping off point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, we have been <laughs> rambling here for a while. What wins your week in genre and drama? Uh, Legends of Tomorrow, um, for its nuanced portrayal of the slave... No, God, no. Um, what wins my week? Um, I'll give it to, um, Queen Sugar this week. Um, I'm kind of struggling, um, as you can tell by me hemming and hawing, but, um, Hmm. I'll give it to Queen Sugar this week. Um, it was a, it was a good Fallout type of episode, and I really, really liked all the violent stuff, um, this Mm -hmm. week. Um, what about you? What won your week? I'll give it to Rectify. Uh, again, it's still like, just so happy to be back with these characters, and I'm really enjoying the dynamics. So, we'll see what we'll see what comes next for for everybody and Polly and, and Daniel and all of the that whole crew. Um, a few show notes here at the end of our week in TV. You can find a post up for this episode at theteleverse.org, the website for the podcast. You can email us theteleverse at gmail dot com. You can also find us in Facebook, like the page there, and start a conversation. You can uh, find us in iTunes, where we have an M4A chaptered feed and MP3 unchaptered feed and we're also up in stitcher uh, we appreciate any ratings or reviews you guys want to leave there that helps other people find the show and hopefully know we're not too crazy or maybe the right kind of crazy who knows um we're also both up on twitter i'm at the televerse and noel you are at noel rk and you can find me writing about the flash in some context every week over at uh, tvguide.com and now we will see we've been hinting at a long episode for a while this is obviously delivered delivered on a really long episode here uh at the televerse again um it's it's been too long ridiculous episode kate has to edit this me i just (laughs) upload my side of the audio and go that's the weekend (laughs) (laughs) it's all good i just you know there's a lot of lovely conversation yet to come with our fabulous guest angelica bastien from vulture and the atlantic and many other places talking about the good wife so enjoy a little good wife clip here and uh we'll be back right after this with angelica bastien talk about a show we have very strong feelings about we'll be right back after this An hour ago, I resigned as state's attorney of Cook County. I want to be clear, I have never abused my office. At the same time, I need to atone for my personal failings with my wife, Alicia, and our two children. You're right. I will talk to your dad. Why don't we talk to him? Ask him everything. What, like if he had a three-way? It's not a three-way, it's a threesome. Yeah, but you could still say three-way. No, you can't. Okay, family meeting's over. I just wanted to say thank you for the opportunity. It's a real lifesaver. Oh, glad you could come aboard. Last time I was in court was 13 years ago. Wow, I was 12. She's a junior associate who doesn't think she's a junior associate. It's not just teaching an old dog new tricks, it's teaching an entitled dog new tricks. Oh, come on, Diane. Well, if you ever need anything. If I ever need anything, give me a call. Okay, I will. 
What are you doing? Working. These are better than subpoenas. First jury trial, shot of tequila. Yeah, I just made that up. Mrs. Florek? Yes, Your Honor. The wife of the esteemed Peter Florek? Your Honor. Mrs. I Florek, don't talk. I like your hair this way. It looks so dowdy on TV, pulled back like that. But that must have been a hard day, huh? State's attorney's here. Mrs. Florek, please, don't make yourself collateral damage here. Mr. Childs, the day you leaked that sex tape to the press, that was the day I became collateral damage. Nice ringtone. Who gets that? Oh, my mother-in-law, my daughter programmed it. back with the televerse this is kate kalsik joined as everybody and old kirkpatrick and this week on the dvd shelf i have so many conflicted feelings we're talking a show that has been one of my favorite shows and also one of my most frustrating shows and that's the good wife so there's a lot to unpack at least for me i'm projecting onto you guys i feel like there might be for you as well but definitely there is for me and so i'm very glad uh, to join us on this conversation and and help at least myself kind of figure out how i should feel about the show uh freelance critic for vulture new york times atlantic village voice uh, uh is is angelica bestien welcome to the podcast Thank you for having me. So are you as similarly conflicted about The Good Wife as I am, Angelica? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I both love the show and absolutely hate it at the same time. Yeah, what made you want to talk about The Good Wife this week? I mean, th- th- there's so much that we can dive in with because of that conflict, I'm sure. But what was it that made it come to your mind? So I decided I wanted to talk about The Good Wife because I feel it's one of the few shows in recent memory that's a continuation of a genre that I used to love from classic Hollywood called The Women's Picture, you know, that had women like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford being an absolute mess and being very selfish and... that genre was really good at using costume design to inform character... Like, you could turn those movies on mute and you could track the arc of a character just by what she was wearing. And The Good Wife is actually very similar to that genre, and I became obsessed with the show because of that. Uh, even just through statement necklaces and brooches for, for <laughs> Diane. Just, like... Exactly. Just from that, yeah. It's, it, it's a show that is... It's fascinating in a lot of ways, Um to me at least, because it's generally throughout its run, it's really good. It's really well made. It's really well put together. They have an amazing cast. Uh, They do a lot of really interesting and creative things with their writing. Um, And that's just on like a basic TV level, but there's also so much that's interesting aesthetically with the costuming, like you say, um, with following this arc of, uh, you know, of, Alicia, but really all, all the characters, a lot of the characters throughout the seven seasons. And of course, as a musician, y'all know I love the music on The Good Wife and the way that they use it. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But at, it's doing so much so well. Why do I still have a bad taste in my mouth on the ship for the show? I mean, it, it ended so poorly that as I was <laughs> watching the pilot... I was I was really enjoying it, 
but the first few scenes I was watching, I was like, ah, and this is where they thought they needed to end the show to match this, and they completely mm-hmm. misunderstood their main character. So, so mm-hmm. I have so much negative uh, emotion tied in with the way the show ended that it was even impacting my ability to go back and watch the parts of the show that I love. Well, I think that um, Angelica's connection to uh, the women's film, which, by the way, now I'm just going to, after we get done, I'm just going to go watch Stella Dallas and cry my eyes out. <laughs> Thanks. Um, love me some Barbara Stanwyck. Um, I actually do. That's not sarcastic. I love Barbara Stanwyck in that Who movie. Who doesn't I love, that movie. love Barbara Stanwyck? Because she's amazing. <laughs> right. <laughs> um I think that um, the women's picture is actually a really good lens to think about the ending and one that I hadn't considered actually, but this idea of ending up right where you started is part and parcel of a lot of uh, the uh, women's pictures at the time. And I think that there's an element of that within the finale, um, but it's not as executed well in the the good wife as it is in those pictures in part because this is a television show and you've got over a hundred episodes and that's over a hundred hours of story that you've been filling and telling as opposed to two hours um, where the arc and everything can be really tightly contained and without having weird digressions into seemingly unmotivated election storylines. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And so I think that, but I still think that that's a really good way to think about it and how those pictures typically end with heartbreak and with people getting exactly what they want, but in the worst possible way, going back again to like Stella Dallas. And um, so Alicia gets everything that she's ever wanted, which is independence and freedom and this whole idea that she can finally lead her life. And But she's this kind of corrupt human being that she never really wanted to be at that point. And I think that that's where that trade-off comes. And it, as unmotivated and kind of weird as that slap from Diane feels, it's still that <clears throat> way to button and symmetrically tie everything together. But like you alluded to, Kate, I think that that is something that the show just didn't completely get they had the idea that they wanted to get there, but then they just couldn't get there in a way that felt organic to their show, that felt organic to their characters. And that's why, again, you weren't projecting, like you and I have discussed this, like it's something that's left a really bad taste in my mouth so much so that when it was announced that the Kings were coming back to the spinoff, I just went, no, (laughs) no. Um, so I, I think that's where we kind of all are with it is like frustrating, but also I think one of the things to remember is that since you went back and watched a bunch of the older episodes is that those older seasons are still just amazingly good. For me, the, since we're, since we're, I guess I'm just going to go negative. We're starting negative. Um, (laughs) the the part, usually we start positive and all the things we like, and then we have like a little but but that's fine. The for me that ending. They had this idea of of they wanted everything full circle. They wanted to have Alicia. They came with an idea of an endpoint that they wanted for various thematic reasons, and they never made it match. To me, at least, they never earned it. It didn't. That didn't match who Alicia was. They all certainly didn't give us any good enough reason to to care about her tie to Peter in the the later part of the series run. So I didn't mm-hmm. buy her doing what she did. 
And um, I certainly didn't buy this sense of jealousy and and anger towards Diane and her stable relationship that the um, the Kings tried to sell in the last few um, episodes, certainly in their interviews and stuff about them. Um, it just felt like they got so in love with an idea and a thematic like through line that they lost track of their character. But maybe that's just me. I'm I'm known um, for having very different views as some of the the my favorite characters on favorite shows uh, than you know the creators. And I would also point to Hannibal and have my having a very different read on Will than apparently I was supposed to. Um, so maybe it's just that. Maybe I just want to think better of Alicia. And what do you think, Angelica? Well, you know what's funny is I actually disagree with you on her character. I think like the whole show is really about or really builds to being about the price women like Alicia have to pay to get what they want, to get that sort of independence and power and what they desire. I find that really fascinating because I mean in in essence she becomes one of the most complicated and complex anti-heroines I think on television. And she does more and more underhanded things while still pretending she was the woman she started the show as. Like, she still wanted to believe that she could be a good person, even though she's she does some really ugly things as the series go on. And I think that is how she really is as a person, or at least grows into. But I do agree that the show didn't... I feel it really worked well in season five when she was just in this really interesting gray area and then Will dies. But the problem, I think, with earning that thematic arc and and going full circle is that a lot of the other storylines around Alicia and the way she was dealing with other characters started to really not make sense. Um, Like, everything that happened with Kalinda pretty much makes no sense. Like, that they (laughs) didn't share any real important screen time, especially after Will's death, that's when it really got, like, absolutely, for me, I was like, that makes no sense that the most we're getting is a phone call between them. Um, And she, it's not like she does things that are out of character, but sometimes they have her do things that don't really make sense for what she, what kind of character they're building her into. She would have divorced Peter. Yeah. Way before the last season. If anything, like the idea that they build up that her and um, and Carrie were sort of like these a little bit more corrupt, darker versions of Will and Diane, that, that was actually an interesting idea with them teaming together and making a firm. But it seemed like they dropped that as quickly as they introduced it. And then she be, decides to run for office. Are you serious? Why would they do that political stuff? That like, that was, it's like they were trying to, push her in way too many directions. And so they weren't able to earn this whole Alicia's ending up as this very cold and harder person in her quest to be independent. Like that's actually a really interesting idea. And I think the show does interesting stuff with it, but in season six and seven, it's so her decisions are unearned. They don't make sense. They feel like the kind of decisions that writers come up with because they want to push the plot forward, not because they're really considering the psychology of their characters. Um, And that's the issues I had with the, with the, with the last season, which was a struggle to get through. Honestly, or or there are ideas that writers come up with because certain actors won't work with certain other actors and the producers have lost control of their set. 
Yep, that's really what it's about. Someone needs to write a tell-all. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write that tell-all. Actually, I am waiting <laughs> for Archie Punjabi. If you're listening, you probably aren't. But Archie Punjabi, if you ever somehow hear this podcast, please hit me up, girl, because I will gladly write that tell-all. I am in your corner, <laughs> and I will read it. <laughs> Well, I think that the point about the psychology um, of Alicia, especially, again, towards the end of the season, is really a significant point to make because so much of that season, both of those seasons, um, put us in Alicia's brain in a way that the show really hasn't before. And so we get scenes with her, like, talking to Gloria Steinem and or the memory pops that kind of very drive her subjectivity forward in ways that the show hadn't been doing before in a way to make sense and justify it. But all it ended up coming across as was very kind of muddled. And there's a way to show that your character isn't sure of what she's doing or why she's doing things without it feeling like the show doesn't know why she's doing these things. But that's not what they managed to convey in anything that happened with this, because I do agree that, (coughs) excuse me, that, Alicia should have and likely would have divorced Peter within season six, if not sometime within season seven. And that, that, that doesn't happen is more about the fact that they wanted to do a fun election storyline where Peter goes to Iowa and competes against Martin O'Malley and somehow doesn't lose to Martin O'Malley. (laughs) And, um, (coughs) so I feel like there's a lot of, attempts to keep people around so that they can do certain plots or drive things forward in ways that to keep storylines going to get people to these dark places like my big hang-up in season seven was Eli coming clean and saying he felt bad about the voicemails which made no sense because I've been watching this show for five years and Eli never gave a damn about those voicemails and deleting them ever once and the idea that this was eating him up for five years just wasn't believable in any way, shape, or form, let alone Alicia getting some plates out and throwing them at him. Um, <coughs> so it just, they had ideas that wanted to really get to this idea of her corruption uh, and power building herself through what she was trying to do, but they never made sense of where she wanted to go with any of this and i think that was like the big problem with like the election storyline in season six is just like she never made clear why she wanted to run in any way it was just like well castro was really mean to will and it's just like well that's a reason but it's not a very compelling reason especially after like you just kind of lose sight of that particular idea and it just it never coalesced into anything that made a lot of sense. And it just goes back to, again, this idea that I think that they wanted to convey that Alicia felt very adrift after Will's death, but they themselves ended up feeling adrift and in how they wanted to depict that. And the show suffered massively as a result. And I think the only other thing to like kind of take apart is Angelica's point about how not only how Alicia was responding to those around her, but the show's response to everyone else's storylines just progressively made less and less sense. Like 
Carrie should not have been on the show after Kalinda left or after he dodged jail um, because we ended up with him sparring with Howard over ageism, which was interesting as a concept, but not interesting in an execution. Um, and his character, as someone who loved Carrie to death, um, just I was really dismayed to just watch that character just kind of fall apart. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with The Good Wife, I mean, as much as I love the show's like first five seasons, especially, it's probably, I think, one of the best recent shows to in terms of depicting storylines that you wish would have happened. Like there's so many, (laughs) yeah, like even the best of seasons, there's like so many unexplored avenues that it's like really infuriating. And they'll waste some like really good actors in the process. Like pretty much any black actor who's been on The Good Wife will kill it performance wise. But those writers could not give a goddamn about their storylines. Like, Geneva Pine, girl, like, what was... Oh, my God. Like, that. that's actually one thing that infuriates me about the show is that there's so many interesting things they set up, but it seems like there was a lot of, like, really weird behind-the-scenes dynamics as to why certain characters didn't really get more developed. Like, you know... Tay Diggs pops up in season six and he's like such a he's in a he's a great actor. He added a fun energy to the cast. And then it was like, oh wait, we had a black person on here, like on on the farm. Oh, well, well, forgot about him. Um, I'm in the attic with you to Julius Kane. Go hang out with Michael Boatman. We're just not gonna talk about you again. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, I used to joke with friends that, like, The Good Wife was as segregated as Chicago actually is, even though it's obviously not filmed in Chicago, which will never stop pissing me off. Um, Because it's, like, it's just a very strange... Like, um, Anika Noni Rose's character that was, like, super important and fascinating. And then they wrote her really weirdly out of nowhere. Like, they realized, like, oh, we don't we can't have her on the show anymore or something. And we need to wrap this up. So let's like, like yeah. really mess this storyline up. But it was an interesting idea, especially cause hello, she's actually right about the Florix and she should have been in office, but then they have to, I guess like, you know, corrupt her and what, uh, whatever. It's so, ugh, God, the show is, uh, and then like people like Derek Bond. I mean, there's just a lot of characters that were set up really interesting ways and then the show kind of did away with them, either because they legitimately forgot they existed or they wanted to kind of rehash some more squabbles within the actual firm. And it's kind of, it can be infuriating to watch the show because there are so many avenues that they don't travel down that could have been really good to show us Alicia's relationship with power. Because I think that's what's really missing from like the last two seasons and then justifying her anti heroine arc is like, we really don't understand like fully how Alicia relates to power and and what kind of power she really wants. Even like in season five, they kind of deal with it a bit when she, you know, dramatically leaves the firm or is fired, depending on your, how you want to call it. But, um, and then she comes back and, you know, 
Diane is like, you know, where did you learn to be like this? And she's like, I had the best teachers. And it's like, I learned it from you, mom. Yeah, pretty much. It was so good. And then her outfit's on point. That was the best wig she's had throughout the whole show. I don't know what they're doing to these wigs, though. But like, (laughs) watching season seven, I literally want to jump into the screen, snatch that off her head, and set it on fire. It looks terrible. Who did that? But anyway, but it's like season five really introduces these really cool ideas of how Alicia has changed and who she's becoming. Um, And then it's the show was so good in season five. That's why I think the last two seasons are so infuriating to me, because, I mean, I actually like the memory pops or like these weird fantasy sequences that would happen. Um, particularly... Right, I wasn't knocking them at all. I think they are beautifully executed. They just didn't work as well as I think they wanted them to work. Well, I mean, at least in in the episode of The Decision Tree, I think it works amazingly, and I wish they could continue with that, but they, I don't know. I don't know what happened to them. Like, I don't know. There are clearly some some stuff, there's clearly stuff going on behind the scenes that was affecting things. Who knows exactly what, but you don't have the quality of writing and the creativity and the clear-eyed character motivations and arcs of the first five years and then have them go away so, like, just kind of all unravel in the last two without there being other things happening. At least that's what I think. Um, And I also, for the record, love the way that the show uses memory and uses uh, imagination. Like, the 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 Alicia and Will like remembering back to their New York trip and she remembers wearing blue and he remembers her wearing red and all of that I love all of that stuff um but yeah it's just for me we spent five years of the characters of Alicia specifically but the characters getting more interesting more complicated being challenged and growing and finding out more about themselves and then we spent the last two years, like kind of slowly over those two years with Alicia becoming simpler, less examined and less interesting. And I, the way, where for me, where she ends is much less nuanced or interesting than where she is in season five and even the beginning of season six. And that if you, if you handle that in a careful way, if you, if that is, if that's the journey you want to take the character on, if you want them to realize things about themselves and actually like have, have like look in the mirror and say, I wanted to think I was this, this and that, but really I'm just that this other thing. And, and then simplify in that way, then that can be really compelling, but I don't think they ever did that for Alicia. And so that's where, that's where I end up frustrated. Um, but it occurs to me, we're almost at a time we should probably talk about the stuff we like about the show because <laughs> there's a lot of it. Um, for me, at least I already mentioned the music at the beginning. I, I, I want to make sure that I don't get through this whole segment and not talk about, I mean, I'm, I'm a violinist when they realized that the, the correct score for their show was broke string orchestra to recontextualize the show as instead of being just a regular lawyer show or a regular nighttime drama, but a Baroque, incredibly heightened melodrama, 
it was it was just like Mwah, perfect that is what this show is and I, it took them a little bit to to get there but i was so excited when they did do you guys have an element of the show that you want to make sure that we talk about uh yeah for me i know i already mentioned like i think the costume design is is really good um but i think one thing i really loved about the show was especially in its early seasons like its sense of sexuality and like it could have really lustful charged scenes without showing much elevators Um, yes elevators Elevators. all things considered ladies all things considered (laughs) they took the mantle of elevators away from gray's anatomy i didn't think anyone would be able to do that but they're like no they're ours now gray's you figure something else out yeah, that, that show, Good Wife is really good eh, at visual metaphors um, in, in a way that's really interesting. Um, and at time would really get to the psychology of the characters in, in very fascinating ways. Um, but if there's any element besides that I want to mention, or at least I thought was really great until the last two seasons of of course, or the last, like, not even last, even more than that, but like Kalinda, I think, started off or was for a while one of the more interesting characters on television is a shame how her art kind of goes. And she pretty much becomes, you know, the good wife's do sex machina for lack of a better term. Like you need something to fix this girl is going to fix it no matter what. But she was just such a really fascinating character and there was all these new layers to her. And I don't think she was a mystery that I don't think we ever really got solved, unfortunately, but Archie Punjabi is just such an amazing actress, and she can rock the hell out of a leather jacket. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One thing I'll mention, um, and this goes back to like our discussion of memory pops and costuming, and but just also the show's overall visual aesthetic um, comes comes together really quickly from how they present things like evidence um, and documents through really tight close-ups or through very like quick like pan shots um to like interrogate that sort of thing um was always really interesting and when i went back and watched the show before season four started sorry season five started um i was surprised at how quickly they figured all of that out because i thought that was something that really coalesced in season two but they had figured it out pretty much like halfway through season one and I was just very surprised to find that, remember that, because I actually came in like halfway through season one. So I just thought they always had done this. And, but they had actually just figured it out very, very quickly. And it became one of those shows whenever someone would talk about how broadcast television doesn't look good or how the cable television just looks so much better. I would just go, no, they're, they're doing so many interesting things visually on The Good Wife that speak to the care that's being given to the show's cinematography and especially to the show's editing. This is one of the best edited shows um, that I've seen. I can't even tell you how long. And all of those things coming together to put together a story that, like what, to just kind of circle back to the beginning, is that you could follow this show fairly well just through the show's cinematography and aesthetics. uh, If you muted it. Um, Just even beyond just the sense of costuming to follow things, you would follow an episode by doing that. Um, and I think that, that just speaks to how well-crafted the show was. 
the only other thing I'll say is that this was very much the show that inherited the, like the Law and Order ripped from the headlines exploration of things um, in really interesting ways. Like I've never seen a better discussion of Bitcoin anywhere than I've seen on this show, or why we should care about things like search algorithms and how important th- that code is. Um, so, like, the show's relationship to technology, but also to things like gender politics and sexuality, um, were all always really compelling and really interesting. And then they could just be kind of silly and be like, we're going to do this episode about music and intellectual property, and it's going to be fantastic. And <laughs> I can do sticky <laughs> trick again. <laughs> yes! Oh, my God, that's... Oh, no, now it's going to be stuck in my head. You're that, welcome. That was my evil plan all along for this. <laughs> Um, was to get Thicky Tricks stuck in your head um, <laughs> again. But also that great music video of everyone dancing to it in that episode. Um, so I think that they, they just had a very keen interest in a lot of really topical things that after Law & Order basically left, they, they assumed that mantle because they were a procedural show. And when you're doing serialized storytelling, you can engage in a lot of certain themes but you have to carry through with them when you're a procedural show you get to pick and choose what you get to deal with each week and that's something that we lose when we do hyper serialized programming um that we don't get to do that kind of really topical programming that's been the hallmark of broadcast television but has been the hallmark of procedural television as well especially like into the 90s um so i was that's always been like one of my big key legacy things for the good wife has been that it was a show that engaged in modern culture in a way that very few other shows do in a very direct way in that kind of a legal technology type of sense yeah those are definitely all things i really love about the show and like rewatching season five i it makes me miss shows that know how to do a good standalone episode and then also build towards an arc like it's sort of it's you know i i've been recapping or just finished recapping luke cage for vulture and those marvel shows are infuriating because they seem to refuse to do any standalone episode but they have so much drawn out like they have to draw out the arc so much because they can't it can't fit those 13 episodes and i wish these showrunners would realize the beauty of television in a standalone episode. But, you know, they're all saying that they're not really doing TV. They're doing a 13-hour movie, so they probably won't realize that. Who wants to watch a 13-hour movie? The only 13-hour movie I would watch would be, like, if you bring (laughs) Betty Davis back from the damn dead. So since that's not going to (laughs) happen, I do not want to see, as much as I love comic books, come on, y'all, like, I don't want to see these people talking to each other about the same stuff and, and making dumb decisions so you can draw out the story even longer. It's the most infuriating thing. But The Good Wife, at its best, understood how to structure the hell out of a show. And even though, like, those were some long seasons, and so that takes a lot of work to really do that properly. But, like, that's what that's why I think season five, for every everything the show makes mistakes on, from the crap of, you know, season six and seven, to I think the show's really weird racial issues. Oh, the the show, Black Lives Matter episode? Oh, oh my it's God. so bad. It's so it bad. It was one of the most tone deaf things I've ever watched. It's just, oof, that was a bad episode. But season five, 
was just such a smart season and how it was structured, how it played with our expectations of these characters. And then, of course, Will Dying pivots the show in such a new direction, which is why it's so infuriating. The show didn't build on that goodwill of the end of season five because it was so good. No pun intended, goodwill. Yeah. Aww. <laughs> well, and the reason that season five is so compelling and so satisfying is because of the groundwork they laid in what I think are really strong seasons one through four. So the season five hitting the fan is just gutturally, viscerally impacting, impactful because it they're so willing to just throw the entire show out the window, be like, we broke the show, you're watching a new show now. And they do that several times in season five and it always feels earned, it always feels driven by the characters and the reason it works, the reason it's so satisfying and so just engaging is because you you understand these characters so well by that point. You know them better than some of them know themselves. And so then you can anticipate and really feel everything that is on that screen with the the shifting dynamics and it's the good wife is an excellent excellent uh argument for the the standard network tv model of the 20 plus episode season of standalones of an, a serialized arc but that isn't overwrought through needing to constantly be re- reminded you know the, the audience needing to constantly be reminded of by the way in case you forgot here's what everybody thinks about everything um it does it does that so well and i mean it's a show that you can have hey let's just bring bob balaban in for an episode and we'll just sit in a room or i know let's watch people try to speak french they don't speak French. Uh, like because there's so many episodes in the season, they they can do the standalone, and they and this is a show that, like you were saying, Angelica is really good at that. Um, and I would say we've spent a lot of time denigrating the, the last two seasons of the show. That is not a reason to not watch the show, as far as I'm concerned. For for people, if they're listening to this and they they're deciding if they're going to go back and check out the show, I don't know why you're still listening. But if you are, I do think it's worth it. I think you know like. If you want to stop watching at the end of season five, I think they actually do a shockingly good job with, like, the Finn Polmar stuff and getting, like, I don't think Losing Will broke the show. Like, I know some people do. They just then weren't able to, they finished out season five in what I thought was a really strong way. And then after that, that's when it started to kind of fall apart. Um, So if you're not sure about the show, watch the first five. You can just stop after five. You'll be fine. You don't need to watch everything, but the first five are absolutely worth it. They're totally worth it. I would say that The Good Wife has some of the best acting that's ever been on television, some of the most amazing cinematography that doesn't have to call attention to itself. You know, uh, to go back to an earlier point, I do think this idea that TV just became visually interesting on cable within the last, like, five 10 years tops or whatever is a lie that people tell themselves to, I guess, feel more, I don't know, cultured or whatever. But there's been a lot of really great television that really knows how to block actors. A lot of these cable shows, I swear to God, they they do the weirdest freaking framing and I want to slap whoever's doing... I'm looking at you, Luke Cage, and every freaking Marvel show. Who the hell does your cinematography? You're under lighting people. They're black people. It's too dark. I can't see them. What is going on there? I don't know. But The Good Wife is just an incredibly, just this really smart show. Um, And it's a show that didn't need to call attention to its intelligence. And, like, 
it wasn't pretentious about it. It was just really just a very smart, beautiful, fascinating, and at its best, very gut-wrenching show. And fun. And fun. Hilarious. It's it's not afraid to be fun and silly and ridiculous at times as well. And uh, we should probably wrap up there. Uh, But you've mentioned Luke Cage a couple times. Uh, Of course, you, you review the show, so you have an extra connection to it. Everyone, if you like Luke Cage... He got that gig because of this show, because yeah. of the, Mike Coulter got that gig because of his work on The Good Wife, and he was, you know, his work on The Good Wife uh, is what made all of us, when he got cast, go, yes, perfect casting. There's so many terrific, even, like, one or two episode actors, like, all the judges, they're just, oh because they God, filmed yeah. in New York, they had access to this amazing group of, of guest and recurring actors uh, who usually do theater. Um, but would pop up like they did on Law and Order, another Noel, another connection to Law and Order, uh, who would just pop up for an episode or two on, on The Good Wife because why not? It might be fun and there's good writing. So, you know, again, why not? Um, and it's just even for them, just to watch Anna Gasteyer say, in your opinion, it's worth it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, God. There's so many different personalities and, and uh, within that whole little universe of The Good Wife. It's just, wow. Man, that show... I, I rewatched a bunch of season five uh, before doing the podcast, and it was just like, you know, I'm not saying every show needs to be 20-something episodes. I, I definitely don't want that. But I do think television has kind of lost the art of a good standalone episode in this yeah. quest to, to be more like film, which is it's the weirdest thing to watch because there, there, television has strengths I feel like it's forgetting about in its quest to sort of legitimize itself and do more contained stories. And it's sort of depressing watching something like The Good Wife or I've been doing a rewatch of Deep Space Nine and that's uh, one of the most well-structured shows I've ever seen as well. It's depressing, but I don't know. Hopefully someone will watch The Good Wife and realize, hey, we can do a standalone episode instead of drawing out our arcs even more that really there's nothing going on. Luke Cage again I'm talking about you (laughs) but there's they do not run the table on that there's a lot of shows that need to learn to embrace the standalone or have fewer episodes one or the other but uh yeah yeah Yeah. well any final thoughts on the good wife Angelica uh my final thoughts are I think it created in Alicia even though it didn't justify it in the last two seasons one of the most uh, complex modern characters, not just female characters, but characters, period. And I'm still angry at them for wasting my beautiful future husband, Matthew Good, on the series <laughs> as Finn Polmar. That beautiful, beautiful man. I didn't even get a sex scene. That's a damn shame. Really <laughs> and truly. Definitely. Uh, co-signed. Uh, Noel? Um, I'll just close with saying Judge Abernathy for life. And... <laughs> <laughs> And that because he was my favorite judge. Um, judge Marks is a very close second, but um, Judge Abernathy for life. <laughs> Fair enough. And yeah, I'm just I, I look forward to the point in time, which apparently is not yet, but will hopefully be soon where I can just let the, the season six and seven bad taste just fade enough from my memory that I, I immediately think of only positive things with The Good Wife because mm-hmm. there's so like I, I cannot think of a show a, a, the recent show that I know more episode titles of than yeah. The Good Wife. Like, I could name 
a probably unhealthy number of Buffy episodes um, and also Angel. But after that and Doctor Who, it's probably The Good Wife for episodes that are crystallized in my mind where I can tell you exactly what happened and I know the episode title and and it has stuck with me so effectively. And that's a testament to the writing and to the, the everything coming together. The, the direction as well. We've mentioned the cinematography and the editing. We should also mention the direction. Nothing yes. like those fifteen minute cold opens. But um but yeah, The Good Wife is a terrific show. And thank you, Angela for Angelica for coming on so that I would relive some of the positive elements of the show <laughs> as well. Happy to be here. Well, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Like, or I should say, where can't they find you and your work online? Yeah, but now it seems like I pop up everywhere. I, I really, I, I'm doing well for myself, I guess. Um, if you want to keep track of me, the best ways are either to check out my website, which is madwomenandmuses.com, or to look at my Twitter account, because I share everything on there. Um, and my Twitter is my first and last name, which is Angelica Bastian, and that's A-N-G-E-L-I-C-A-B-A-S-T-I-E-N. You find me there on Twitter, you can find all my work. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Angelica, for coming on, and thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.